Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The horse world is a very exclusive place. Many of the owners are millionaires, and the horses are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. On the surface, it's a very pristine world. But as an FBI agent, when I looked at it closely, I uncovered fraud, corruption, and killings on a scale I'd never encountered before. A gruesome conspiracy has shaken the horse show industry. Federal investigators say those names were motivated by greed and money. It was like turning a rock over and seeing everything underneath. Horse shows is not where you might expect to hear talk of fraud and hitmen. Prominent equestrians across the country needed someone to do their dirty business. The hitman was paid up to thirty-five thousand dollars per killing. He got the nickname the Sandman. You wanted something done, see the Sandman. It's so dark and disgusting. We knew if we can get to him, it would blow the case wide open. Horse racing's Triple Crown kicks off tomorrow with the Kentucky Derby, but its big story so far is not about the competition. This week, four horses died in a five-day span at the Churchill Downs racetrack where the Derby is held. Two were euthanized after suffering injuries. The cause of the other two deaths is still unclear, but the trainer of those horses has been suspended from the Kentucky Derby, and another of his horses has been scratched from the race. Joe Drape covers horse racing for the New York Times and he's with us now. Hi, Joe. Hi, Sasha. Joe, these horse deaths have been a big problem for this industry for a very long time. But in terms of these most recent four deaths, is there anything else you've learned through your reporting about what happened, what caused them? Well, it's being taken very serious. And the first two were deaths on the racetrack. Something happened. It was skeletal, muscular. They could not recover from it, so they were euthanized. The Two sudden deaths is what is puzzles everybody. You know, there's a new mechanism in place right now called the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority. And so they've amped it up. They've taken blood and uh, hair samples. They've investigated, but they're puzzled, basically. You know, in my reporting over the years on this has shown that 56% of the time when they do a necropsy, when they examine a horse that had died, they cannot come with a definitive diagnosis or prognosis of what happened to the horse. Churchill Downs put out a statement about these horse deaths, and it called them completely unacceptable, but it also said highly unusual. Are they really highly unusual? They are highly unusual. You know, what has happened? They've actually done a pretty good job. We did a series with the Times in the early aughts, and at that point, two horses died per thousand starts. It set off a reform movement. They have an equine injury database. They made some changes in rules and regulations, both on the medications and how they're treated and how the racetracks are configured. And it's almost gone in half to that point. This past year, it was 1.25 per thousand races. 
And, you know, the fact of the matter is there's never going to be zero fatalities in horse racing. And that's what society is eventually going to have to grapple with. Joe, you've reported that the fatality rate in the U.S. is two and a half to five times greater than in the rest of the racing world. What are we doing in the United States that's causing that? Too many medication and drugs. Uh, they pretty much run what we call hay, oats, and waters in the rest of the world. You know, if your horse is sore, you're not going to give him a corticosteroid to get him to the track to race. They're more vigilant with their veterinarian inspections. They're more vigilant with their testing. You know, they just have a different worldview that has worked for them. And not only are we two and a half to five more than them, Horse racing is far more popular in the rest of the world than it is in America. Uh, dying here, it seems like. It seems like there's declining interest. Total declining interest. You know, you could argue it's on life support, and it's going to be sort of a hard sunset for that. The horses mean so much to the country. Uh, they helped us settle this place. They're such a part of our sports history. You know, it's, it's on life support. They're trying to get it under control. Ultimately... We, me, you, who's watching Saturday or who's not watching Saturday, will decide how long they will tolerate the sport. Joe Drape of the New York Times, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Sasha. This week, the U.S. Surgeon General declared a new epidemic in the United States, loneliness. It has real consequences for our mental and physical health. It increases our risk of depression, anxiety, and suicide. But social disconnection also raises the risk of heart disease and dementia and premature death on levels on par with smoking daily and even greater than the risks that we see associated with obesity. That's Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy speaking with PBS about an 80-page report on loneliness as a major public health crisis his office released yesterday. To learn about the impact of loneliness on our bodies and our brains, we're joined now by Turhan Kamley, neuroscience professor at Stony Brook University. Welcome to Press Play. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Madeline, for having me. Great to have you. All right. So you heard the Surgeon General there saying that loneliness is linked to severe diseases like heart disease. He says also stroke, uh, early death on par with smoking 15 cigarettes a day. What is the science behind that? When I heard this uh, this uh, this uh, report the other day, I was I was really um, uh, relieved to uh, have such a uh, you know public figure um, amplify the message because in 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 the field of psychology and neuroscience, this is a, a, a very well established finding that uh, loneliness is not only associated with emotional. Uh, problems with depression and with anxiety and sleep disorders, but also with with things that most people wouldn't associate being psychologically linked. Things like heart disease, cancer, inflammatory disease, even accelerated aging and cognitive decline. Um, and the research that has established these uh, these observations comes from a, a range of studies. Um, particularly strong are the longitudinal studies that would look at uh, the the, the lifespan development of people uh, at middle age and then follow them for a decade or longer and establish that uh, the, the level of loneliness that people have at the beginning of the study can be a very powerful predictor of how they're doing uh, down the line uh, years, decades later. 
And you actually look at brains. You you study the brains of people who have died and donated their brains to science. And you, going back decades, you have looked at these brains. How do brains who of people who were lonely, chronically lonely, differ from other brains? Loneliness is a tricky thing to measure objectively because it really reflects the way you feel inside uh, about the social connection you have to the world around you, right? So it's mm-hmm. it's not enough to just know whether you have many people in your in your social circle, but but how you subjectively feel about whether you're connected to these people or not. And what we began to do then a few years ago was to to focus in on brain regions that are known to be involved in social social processing and social reward. And we looked at the expression patterns of all the genes. Uh, in in the cells that make up these brain regions. And so we were analyzing these brain regions specifically with an interest towards, is there any difference in expression, uh, in the expression of genes as a function of whether somebody was more or less lonely? And what we were really surprised to find was that it wasn't just one or two genes that were differentially expressed, but hundreds. In fact, uh, over a thousand genes that were differentially expressed in in these brain regions. Um, and so that is now a, a sort of a, an exciting opportunity for us to start thinking about the molecular mechanisms by which we can find a bridge between the social isolation, the experience of social isolation that is very subjective and in your mind in a way, and physical things like cancer or heart disease or inflammatory disease. And uh, and so that's that's where this work is is uh, situated. So there isn't an A equals B connection that if you are lonely for 10 years, you will definitely have an increased risk of cancer necessarily. No, it's not. It's not quite like that. I mean, few things in biology are quite like that. Right. But there's definitely an increased risk. And so the question is, what what could explain that increased risk? And one of the ways to think about it is to say, if you are chronically lonely, I mean, everybody's lonely every once in a while, but if you feel lonely all the time, that's that's a very stressful way to be. Mm-hmm. It's a physical stressor, just like any other, just having a stressful job might be stressful for you. And we know stressful jobs aren't very good for your, for your health either. And um, so, so what happens when you're stressed out is that your body produces stress hormones. And these stress hormones can work as little switches that can affect the expression of genes. They can upregulate a gene, they can downregulate a gene, and that's just a single one, but dozens, hundreds of genes even. Any gene that has sort of a lock for that key that fits that hormone can be altered in its expression value. And so that's one of the ways we can think about how um, um, social experiences can alter gene expression. Okay, I want to bring in Kate Murphy now. She's a journalist and author of the book, You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters, to talk about how to possibly combat this. Kate, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Okay, so the Surgeon General said, look, we've seen this decline in participation in community groups, faith organizations, clubs, socializing in general. Technology has often replaced what used to be uh you know, rich in-person connections. And so you have looked at this for your book and how does the quality of connection matter when it comes to loneliness? 
Well, it's really everything. Because uh, if you don't feel connected, you feel lonely. And what I talked about in the book is how we've come to feel so isolated and disconnected. And as you say, you know, technology has a big part of it. If if you can be with a lot of people, but if everybody's looking at their phone, then you're going to feel lonely. You're going to feel left out. Everybody's in their technological bubble and they're separated from one another. And and how did we get to this point? Because I think a lot of us feel like, oh, well, if we send a text, we're connecting and we do feel yeah. maybe a little rush of connection, a, a little good feeling when you're in a text exchange with someone, but, but sure. maybe that's not sufficient. Well, you know, the way I like to think about it is it's kind of like um, junk food <laughs> and technology. And, and it, it's great. I mean, you know, an M&M's nice. Cheetos good every once in a while, mm-hmm. you know, not all the time. And, and it gives you their calories. It's digestible and kind of tasty. But if you really want something that's going to a friendship, a connection that's going to nurture you and sustain you, you need a whole natural foods. It's sort of the difference between eating something that's processed versus something like a blueberry flavored muffin versus a real blueberry muffin. There's, it's just a big difference in terms of your health, in terms of the way it tastes and the way it makes you feel. You eat a lot of junk food, you're going to feel sick after a while. Yeah. So, I mean, that's stretching the analogy, but it's, it's, I think it's apt. The Surgeon General said in particular, young people are feeling this more. Uh, that especially people between ages of 15 and 24. And I guess, is that why, is that because they are more apt to be online and to be on their phones than older people? Uh, I think that's true. And also they, they don't have, it's, it's the technology, but also the opportunities to socialize have, I mean, you reference some of the things that we used to do that we don't do anymore. I mean, even if you think maybe a hundred years ago or so, um, I'm from the American South and, and people sat out on porches, people sat around campfires, you know, many Mm -hmm. years ago. And so if you look at the research of the amount of time we spend during the day, listening to other people, it has been cut in half in the past hundred years. And we used to make it a priority. You, you could, you know, work really hard during the day, but there was always that time where you sat down and you talked to people. And, and it's, you know, it's not just our smartphones. So smartphones are, you know, way more engrossing than television, but, you know, it started with television where people Mm -hmm. start just, it's sort of this gradual eroding of our opportunities, our experiences with other people that has led us to where we are right now. And, and, and for all of us, it's, it's, you know, it's me too. Like, you know, today, you know, I have another book that I'm working on. I have like a story that I'm writing for different publications and all these different things. And some, one of my neighbors asked me to breakfast this morning. And generally, you know, we're all like so busy and no, I don't have time for that. You know, let's do it another time. But that another time doesn't come. And I went ahead and went to breakfast with her. And, you know, part of my brain was like, oh my God, I can't do this. But, you know, the phone stayed home. I went and sat with her and just that moment of connection with her. And she told me some things that were going on that you just don't get that back. We so we're so think that we're going to have the time later. Mm-hmm. And then after a while, then we almost, when we do have time, we almost feel ashamed to reach out to the friend that we've neglected for that long. And so it just becomes this spiral yeah. and relationships. I, you know, to use another analogy is they're kind of like gardens 
And if you don't constantly, you know, make the time to tend to them, to weed them, to water them, then after a while, it's just so overgrown. You, you just don't even walk in anymore. And I think that's where we are, this, this feeling of loneliness, but not, not really this ability feeling like you can re-enter the, the social world, particularly, I mean, if you think about now with remote work. Yeah, and, it's even worse. Exactly. So, so he, he recommends, um, the Surgeon General recommends maybe workplaces should reconsider working from home policies and make them, mm-hmm. you know, reconsider having people come back to to work. And yet he says, if we truly want to be a healthy, happy, and I'm quoting him here, and, mm-hmm. and fulfilled society, we have to restructure our lives around people. Right now, our lives are centered around work. So how do you balance those? Because I think a lot of people do find companionship at work. Well, I, you know, I, I would agree with him. I, you know, and even if you are engaged in remote work and, you know, some people, you know, it works better, they have kids and I understand that, but to just realize it, make it a priority as part of your like personal hygiene, <laughs> like you wouldn't forego brushing your teeth or eating and, and really being with other people is as important as eating. It is, it is, it is something that, we loneliness is kind of like thirst and hunger. It is, it is a clue that something's really not right when you're feeling lonely. And so to pay attention to that and also realize I haven't been with someone I haven't really said, and it's not only being with that person. And this is what I get to in my book. It's really knowing how to listen to another person, to allow them in, to connect and to ask them questions and really be present when you're with another person. So it's, it's the, it's making time for the interaction, but also the quality of the interaction and to really realize that that is essential to your health. And it's not something you can get to later. And it's not something that's accomplished with an emoji. You need to be with other people and talk to them on the phone, but really talk to them on the phone, not talk to them while you're driving, for example. Oh, great point. Exactly that. Because you really can't connect with another person if part of your brain is somewhere else, whether it's driving or you're checking social media while you're talking to them or just your brain is in a million other places. You, you need to be with them, whether you know it's on the phone or but mentally with them. All right. I want to turn back to Turhan Kenley, professor of integrative neuroscience at Stony Brook University for a final question. So listening to everything that Kate said, is it possible if we do all these things um, and I, it's not that hard, really, it's picking up the phone and having a meaningful conversation and actually making an effort to be with people. Can we change the physical harm that perhaps uh, years of loneliness has caused us? You know, I, I think uh, I think that's actually an empirical question. That's a research question yet to be answered. I, I'm very hopeful that it can, because I believe that uh, for for all of the you know molecular mechanisms that I alluded to earlier, uh, they are dynamic little switches. They respond to our environmental experiences that we expose ourselves to, and so if we change our environment by doing all these healthy things, treating uh, our social connections like healthy food, right? Uh, 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 realizing that multitasking isn't the way to to connect with someone, um, then we change our environment. And, and that then in turn will change 
has the potential to change and undo any of the other uh, damage that had occurred before. So that is definitely something that um, a lot of um, future research um, will be will be addressing to better understand exactly what what the best way is to do that. And and there may not be a single solution that's good for everybody. Everybody may have different reasons why they feel lonely. Uh, and and so there may not be a one size fits all kind of a solution here. But the more we understand about how it works at the at the level of the brain and the interaction between the environment and and the brain, um, the better our chances of, of fixing what what needs to be fixed. Chirhan Kamli is a professor of integrative neuroscience at Stony Brook University. Kate Murphy is a journalist and author of the book "You're Not Listening: What You're Missing and Why It Matters." Thank you both so much. Thank you. Hitler had the supreme fascist state. And what was he worried about in Europe and in Germany? He was worried about white genetic annihilation. At Christie's Auction House today, bidding began on a massive collection of jewels, around 700 pieces from designers like Cartier, Tiffany, Harry Winston. The sale is estimated to bring in more than $150 million, which is earmarked for charity. The collection belongs to the late Austrian billionaire Heidi Horton, but it has a dark past. Her first husband, Helmut Horton, built a retail fortune in Europe, partly by buying up Jewish-owned businesses in Nazi Germany. According to historians, the shop owners were pressured to sell their businesses below value. Zachary Small wrote about all of this for the New York Times. They cover power and privilege in the art world. Welcome to Press Play. Thank you for having me. Well, before we get into this dark past of this collection, let's talk about it, the jewelry itself. What kinds of pieces will be up for auction? Oh, well, the jewelry itself, uh, you know, there are absolutely stunning pieces with emeralds and sapphires, some of the largest diamonds you might ever see, uh, including a a 90 carat diamond called the Briolette of India. And it has a a very reasonable estimate of $7.8 million. Oh, chicken feed. And the owner, let's talk about her. She died last year, Heidi Horton. Uh, She was a billionaire and inherited a lot of this money from her first husband. How did he make his fortune? So Heidi Horton inherited her fortune from Helmut Horton, who was a German businessman who in his late 20s during the Nazi era started buying up Jewish businesses during what was called Aryanization, where the German state was forcing uh, Jewish businessmen to give up their companies and, and sell, oftentimes at a very steep discount. And he was a member of the Nazi party, right? Yes, he was a member of the Nazi party for most of the Nazi era. There were sort of ups and downs as there were with many businessmen, but he certainly did take advantage of the situation and built his initial fortune on those Jewish companies. And describe his fortune and his business. What was it? So his business was mostly made first in department stores and later uh, in grocery stores. And You know, he's sometimes credited as introducing supermarkets to Germany in the post-war era. But again, that fortune was really founded on this idea of taking Jewish department stores, buying them and and then turning them into his own brand. And how much did Heidi know about this? It's a subject of speculation. Uh, Certainly, 
you know, when they met in the 1960s, he was a very wealthy man already. And one can imagine that it wouldn't take much to, you know, dig into that. And certainly in the German press, there has been a paper trail of his dealings. But she did hire an historian, right, to investigate? Yeah, that's correct. So one thing we can definitely say is that Heidi Horton and her fortune, uh, since her husband's passing, have been trailed by these accusations that their wealth came from, you know, this ironization of Jewish companies. So what she did a few years ago before her death was commission a report from the historian Peter Horas to look into the nature of that wealth and to attempt to settle the historical record of where exactly his money was made. And what did they find? Um, So the report, of course, was commissioned by Heidi Horton, and I think that's important to note um, just at the beginning. And certainly there are a lot of historians that don't agree with the report and call it a whitewash. Peter Horace disagrees with that. And to his credit in the report, you know, there are several facts that they unearthed about Helmut Horton, including his use of forced laborers in some of his manufacturing plants. They also did confirm accounts that Helmut Horton took Jewish companies at steep discounts, oftentimes when Jewish business owners were facing severe threats of the Holocaust. Did he himself make threats that if you don't sell to me, then I'll report you to the authorities and have you sent to a camp or anything like that? This is where the historical record gets a little murky. Uh, Peter Horace claims through his own research into archives um, and, you know, he spent about a year on this research that there's no evidence that exists that clearly shows that Helmut Horton made such threats. However, in a, a recent book published by Stephanie Stefan, whose father was on the board of a company that uh, Helmut was potentially interested in buying, based on her father's records, he did make those threats to the Jewish owners of that company. Well, Even if he didn't, he did get these businesses at a steep discount. And I'm wondering if he ever paid any kind of restitution to these businesses, to these business owners or their heirs. There were certainly many claims for restitution, including from Stephanie Stefan's father, Reinhold Stefan, in the 1950s, as many other business owners in Germany who created their wealth during the Nazi era were forced into either settlements or, you know, went through the judicial system to pay compensation to victims' families or to the businessmen who had fled because of Nazi Germany. In terms of this specific story, though, the lawsuit from Reinhold Stefan ultimately uh, was dismissed in German court. With Mm. the Austrian and German judiciary, a lot of the judges were in the Nazi party. So it was incredibly hard for people to actually get compensation. So it's complicated. Right. So this brings us to the present and to this auction. How much did Christie's know about this, about the history of this fortune? Oh, there's no question that Christie's knew exactly what the nature of the fortune behind the Horton Jewels was. You know, Christie's is a multinational company. They have stores in Germany and Austria. So it's hard to imagine that they were caught so off guard. This is also a woman who is an art collector and was presumably a a client at Christie's. So they would know exactly where that fortune was coming from. But initially, at least, they didn't address it in their auction catalog for for this collection, did they? 
No, they did not. Um, they said that, you know, they were not trying to hide any information and that the history of Horton's fortune was well-documented. Well, I'm looking at the website now about this collection, and it's a little difficult to find it. Um, I guess there's a little bit in the About Heidi Horton section. Mm -hmm. Uh, It says, the business practices of Mr. Horton during the Nazi era when he purchased Jewish businesses sold under duress are well documented. That's pretty much it. Right. And that was kind of the line that they sent us in their prepared statements. That line was added to the website in the course of our reporting uh, and updated in their information. So are they going to divert any of the proceeds to Jewish causes or do anything along those lines? According to Guillaume Saruti, who leads Christie's, they're going to donate a portion of their proceeds uh, from the sale to Holocaust research and education. They have not yet said what percentage or what portion of those proceeds will actually go, though. And the rest of the proceeds are going to charity? Well, the rest of the proceeds are going to Heidi Horton's foundation, which both does have philanthropic efforts uh, and does medical research, but uh, is primarily focused on her museum in Vienna. Which is not not a charity or? (laughs) Which houses her art collection. Ah, well, that does lead me to my next question. And that is how common is it for Christie's or any auction house to be involved in something like this, to be involved with shady history of collections or art? Um, there are other lots of looted antiquities. There's Nazi art. There are artifacts from enslaved people. There's all sorts of stuff that could be of dubious provenance. What I like to remind people about is that the major auction houses like Christie's and Sotheby's were mostly started in the 1700s, and they were willing to sell anything from a painting to a bedpan. They are not necessarily the most discriminating buyers when it comes to the auction block. What they're looking for is what is saleable to an exclusive clientele that are looking for either investments or artworks that gain them some sort of social or cultural status. And you're certainly correct that they've had a number of issues, especially in recent years, as people have become more aware of looted artifacts and and just how many museums have these, let alone the auction houses, that when auction houses say they've done provenance work, it's perhaps not quite up to snuff for other historians or from indigenous groups who have lost those works, oftentimes through colonization. Zachary Small is a reporter who contributes to the New York Times, where they cover power and privilege in the art world. Zachary, thank you. Support Dr. Shakur. Dr. Matulu Shakur is a legend in the Black Liberation Movement. As a former member of both the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army. He's widely known as a defender of Black freedom. He was charged and convicted of helping Asata Shakur flee her unjust confinement, leading to her freedom in Cuba. But Dr. Shakur earned kudos for work as a doctor trained in acupuncture, where he used his art to treat many, many drug addicts during the 1960s and 70s. Dr. Shakur co-founded several healthcare institutions in the Bronx using acupuncture treatment instead of methadone to detox drug addicts. 
people in New York ghettos know and love Dr. Shakur for his unflinching service to the people. Today, Dr. Mutulu Shakur is free. But after decades in federal prisons, he now needs your help to pull his life together. Support Dr. Mutulu Shakur. For more information, go to Mutulu, M-U-T-U-L-U, Shakur, S-H-A-K-U-R.com. With love, not fear, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? Because it comes say from it's China. Racist. It's not racist at all. No, not at all. It comes from China. China should play a bigger role in the world. That's the belief of the country's president, Xi Jinping, and he's making it happen. Last week, he held his first phone call with the Ukrainian leader, Volodymyr Zelensky, since the Russian invasion. And last month, China took the world by surprise when it brokered a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran to restore diplomatic relations. But what will a more emboldened China mean for America and the rest of the world? Joining us to discuss this is Yoon son, a senior fellow at the Stimson Center, and Ryan Haas, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thank you both so much for being with us. Thank you, Aisha. Thank you for having me. So if we can start with President Xi's phone call to Ukraine, uh, Ryan, why do you think that's happening now? And, and what is the significance? Well, Aisha, it's a good question because, as you pointed out, uh, it's been over a year since Russia invaded Ukraine, and President Xi has spoken many times with his Russian counterpart, uh, Vladimir Putin, but has not spoken with the Ukrainian leader, Zelensky. And I think that part of it has to do with the fact that China wants to do a bit of cleanup work for a Chinese ambassador to France who put his foot in his mouth and offended a lot of Europeans by suggesting that uh, former Soviet states do not have sovereignty. But there's also, I think, a deeper subtext to the story, Aisha, which is that President Xi has built his brand on being firm and, and resolute and not bowing to pressure. And I don't think he wanted to be seen as bending to demands uh, from Europe and the United States for him to call Zelensky. And so it's notable that there has been a, a quiet period over the past several weeks where there has not been a lot of public pressure upon President Xi to reach out to Zelensky. And then this week he did so. And this may have a lesson for the United States as well. It may suggest that public badgering uh, of President Xi may not be the most effective way for the United States to achieve its outcomes uh, with President Xi either. And Yun, is, is, is part of this that generally China wants to be a player or one of the main players or the main player in the world today when it comes to geopolitics? Like, is this something that has changed uh, I think specifically to the war in Ukraine, the Chinese position is that it cannot be absent. Beijing has already realized when it doesn't have a voice, when it doesn't have a position, it will be labeled by uh, the Western countries as the accomplice uh, of President Putin. And that is not a reputation that China is willing to, to undertake. 
So we do see that China now is trying to play a more active role in terms of the uh, mediation or the facilitation of a dialogue or some sort of peace discussion between uh, Russia and Ukraine. As you think, it's a very long way to go. And this is the very beginning of a very long process. But it does show that China is unwilling to be absent from the issue. I, I completely agree with you, but I, I also wanted to take up the broader point that uh, that you were raising. I do think that the Chinese want to present themselves as a peacemaker on the world stage. They played a very active role in, in trying to encourage rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. But the Chinese also want to be seen as uh, as the leading economic engine of uh, the global economy in the coming century. So then... How worried is Washington about China's ambitions on the world stage? Well, uh, you know, China is one of the issues in Washington that brings both Democrats and Republicans together uh, with a a shared sense of concern and, and frankly, frustration with uh, some of Chinese behavior. Uh, And I think that there is growing alarm, but there's also frustration. Uh, There's a sense that uh, in Washington that the United States and China must keep channels of communication open uh, to uh, maintain consistent communication, which is essential to ensuring that competition does not veer into conflict or catastrophe. And uh, in recent weeks, members of the Biden administration have suggested uh, an interest in, in strengthening those channels of communication, including by facilitating a phone call between President Biden and President Xi. But the Chinese, uh, according to Washington's telling, have not been very responsive uh, or eager to pick up the phone. And so there's a, a growing frustration uh, that, uh, that the United States wants to work to stabilize relations, but there's not a willing partner on the other side of the table to do so. Is the reason why these issues of like the role that China is going to play, the role that the U.S., the West are going to play, is it vital because we are now in a battle that is really over influence and what type of world we will have, like whether it's going to be one based on democracy or one based on autocracy? Well, I think that's one way to look at it, because uh, there have been the attempt to define this competition between U.S. and China as one uh, that is ideological. But on the other hand, it is about two very different types of international system. The Chinese have come to the realization that great power competition essentially is a competition for the rest of the world. It's about whether the rest of the world will identify with the United States and the U.S. approach to international politics and the international system or identify with China and China's different approach and alternative world, world vision um, to, the, to the global order. I think Yoon has captured it well. The, the honest truth is there really is no consensus in the United States on what the crux of competition between the United States and China is. Uh, there are a range of views. So you often hear President Biden talk about uh, democracies being in a contest against autocracies for influence on the world stage. But you also hear other people in the Biden administration and elsewhere essentially warning that prestige drives from performance and China's performance is improving. Uh, their their overall economic power, their overall national power, their overall military power is growing. Um, the question that I think a lot of people are grappling with is what is the most effective way to respond uh, to China's growth in overall national power? And some people believe that, uh, that the United States simply needs to run faster to keep its lead over China. And others uh, feel like more aggressive actions also are needed uh, as well to maybe trip up or slow down uh, the competition from China in order for the United States to to maintain or preserve its its lead in overall national power on the world stage. 
we should remember, right, um, that there is a huge economic component to this. Talk about how that plays a, a, a role in all of this. Well, Aisha, I think you're absolutely right. Over 120 countries in the world count China as their top trading partner. Uh, China is deeply embedded into the the global economic system in a way that the Soviet Union never was uh, during the Cold War, for example. But there there are two other sort of broad themes that I think we can uh, extrapolate from watching how countries are responding to this growing competition between the United States and China. And one is that there really are very few countries in the world that are eager to choose uh, between the United States and China. We are not seeing the emergence of rival blocks between uh, the United States and China like we did during the Cold War with with the Soviet bloc and the uh, Western bloc. So that is not happening. Uh, the, the second thing that uh, we're beginning to see is that there are very few countries in the world that are eager to pay a high price to preserve American primacy. In other words, you know, there are countries uh, around the world that share values and interests with the United States and, and want to remain close partners and allies with the United States, um, but not uh, at a significant expense of trying to do damage to China and hurting themselves in the process. And so uh, this places sort of natural limits on how far uh, countries around the world are going to be willing to align with the United States in opposition uh, to, to Chinese actions. Yoon, how do you think this growing rivalry will play out between the U.S. and China? Is 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 this something that people should be worried about? Well, I think people are worried about this and most um, focusedly on the issue of Taiwan, right? There have been all this discussion about what China's timeline is coming to Taiwan and whether China will take military action uh, against Taiwan in the in the foreseeable future. So I think there is a genuine concern that U.S. and China will get into a direct confrontation or a conflict even um, because of the issue of uh, of the future status of uh, of Taiwan. But outside, I would say outside the scope of the Taiwan issue, we are going to see the intensification of the competition between U.S. and China. I would say in the past six, seven years, the Chinese still had the illusion that maybe it still could leverage its um, willingness to cooperate with the United States to neutralize the competitive strategy from uh, from the United States and try to find a softer approach to coexist with the United States. But I think that um, perception or that assessment in China is also coming to, to an end, which means that Beijing is also increasingly clear that the strategic competition between U.S. and China is not only irreversible, it's also non-negotiable. So what that means is China is gradually positioning itself for a long-term competition with the United States, which will have significant impact over the rest of the world, which also means their competition is going to intensify. I would just say, though, that uh, although there are strongly unfavorable views of China in the United States, there's very little enthusiasm in the United States for a direct conflict uh, between two new nuclear armed powers, which the United States and China are. And if you look at the pattern of relations over the past couple of years, yes, uh, competition has grown um, more elevated and, and more tense. But when things have gotten really hot, President Biden and President Xi have stepped in uh, to intervene and try to cool things down and, and serve as a bit of a pressure release valve on the overall relationship. That's Ryan Haas, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and Yoon Sun, senior fellow at the Stimson Center. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. 
Thank you, Aisha. After the lights went out in Moore County. Yeah, the gunfire attacks that knocked out power to thousands of people raised some serious concerns about security on our power grid. Tonight, WRL investigates Cullen Browder explores what has changed since then and what hasn't when it comes to protecting our power. Thousands of electric substations dot our nation's landscape. Metal boxes and high-voltage wires often in full view behind a chain-link fence. But the house does not have heat. It's just insane. The December Moore County attacks exposed just how reliant communities are to even one station. So what really happened in Moore County? One engineering expert theorizes it this way. The first substation attacked is in Carthage, where a lower-voltage distribution site is located. But the most critical damage happened next at the West End substation, which is connected to a high-powered line. So just a few gunshots took out the entire electrical loop that circles Pinehurst and Southern Pines, robbing power from 45,000 customers. Has Duke Energy stepped up its security since Moore County? We have gone back and, and looked at a lot of our systems since the events of Moore County to, to evaluate opportunities for making improvements. Duke Energy spokesman Jeff Brooks says that includes physical security, like this improved mesh fencing at a substation near downtown Raleigh, but also surveillance and technology to reroute power when systems fail. There's some things you see and there's some things you can't see. And security is, is a multi-layered approach that we take. WRL Investigates visited both those Moore County substations earlier this month. West End now includes a perimeter fence blocking traffic well away from the site. Within 10 minutes of our unannounced arrival, a sheriff's deputy pulled up. He questioned us, then ran our driver's licenses in the system kindly warning us to abide by the no trespassing signs. Don't go anything. We found the Carthage station still quite visible next to the road. However, security cameras now monitor the site. While no one ever checked on us, Duke Energy later shared these surveillance pictures of our visit. How worried should we be about the security of our power grid? I don't think we should panic, but I think we should certainly be quite concerned. Carnegie Mellon engineering professor Granger Morgan headed up three national reports on the power grid. He says recommended security upgrades are slow to happen, especially when it comes to oversight. The problem that there's really nobody with responsibility to deal with the entire resilience issue across the board in the power system is something that has not had enough attention. The documents are out there. Jack Reedy, digital security expert with INE, warns there's a virtual how-to guide to attack power stations circulating online for those up to no good. That's where we have to start figuring out what's in the guide and hardening against those attacks. Reedy asked the colleague who's currently active on the dark web to see what he could find. Include detailed schematics and equipment manufacturers in addition to standard operating procedures of those particular areas. I'm sure that if you went through that target package, there's probably Google map images on there of the roads and things like that. The power system is inherently vulnerable. Dr. Granger suggests blocking the easy view, adding surveillance, and better protection for transformers at the most critical substations. Just as important, resilience, the ability to reroute power. 
Brooks agrees. You can do everything right on your system and still have an attack. If we can't stop it from happening, we want to contain the impacts to a smaller area and get power back up faster. Of course, most times it's the bad weather causing these outages, but a new Homeland Security bulletin warns extremist groups keep spreading information on how to attack the grid. Cullen Browder, WREL News. Meantime, Governor Cooper's latest budget plan does include some money for a study on needed power grid security upgrades. I've seen what's around the corner. I've seen what's over the horizon. And I promise you, you niggas have nothing to celebrate. I know I won't get there with you. I'm going to Canada. There are many examples of excited delirium being used as an explanation for deaths after interactions with police. It was cited in the case of Robert Jakansky, who died after being repeatedly tasered by police at the Vancouver airport in 2007. It was cited in the death of Abdi Rahman Abdi, an Ottawa man who died in 2016 after a confrontation with officers, and in the death of George Floyd, who died in 2020 after police in Minneapolis pinned him to the ground. Experts, though, are starting to call that defense into question. The National Association of Medical Examiners in the United States recently said that excited delirium should not be used as a cause of death. Dr. Alfredo Walker is a forensic pathologist and a coroner for Eastern Ontario, also vice chair and director of education at the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at the University of Ottawa. And Dr. Michael Freeman is an associate professor of forensic medicine and epidemiology at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. He's also a professor of forensic psychiatry at Oregon Health and Science University. Good morning to you both. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Dr. Walker, what is excited delirium? This phrase is thrown around. What does it actually mean? So uh, excited delirium is a putative phenomena which has been used traditionally to explain the death of an individual who dies during some sort of physical interaction with law enforcement. Uh, it's typically diagnosed as a cause of death after post-mortem examination in these cases. Um, typically, the victims are young adult males who suffered some form of physical restraint at the time of death. The literature has fallen out of favor with excited delirium as a realistic medical entity. Mm. And its proponents have described that the at-risk victims are individuals who, one, use large quantities of stimulant drugs, such as cocaine or amphetamine, methamphetamine, are mentally ill, uh, paranoid schizophrenia, manic depression, tend to be non-compliant with their antipsychotic medications, exhibit bizarre behavior that precipitates um, contact with the police and a police response, and they fail to then respond appropriately to police commands um, when police attend. Just briefly, how did this term come to be used in these sorts of, of, of cases? So this has a, a long uh, history in that it, the first mention of it uh, in terms of modern day use dates back to a paper that was published in the Journal of Forensic Sciences by uh, uh, Fishbane and Wetley, who were uh, psychiatrists and forensic pathologists 
respectively, mm-hmm. at the University of Miami um, in uh, decedents who, uh, a cohort of decedents who died whilst intoxicated in cocaine. Um, but there has not ever been any sort of rigorous analysis of these types of cases to establish diagnostic criteria. And it sort of evolved um, as a term that is used to explain the death of individuals who die after coming in contact with law enforcement, um, most times with some degree of physical restraint. Dr. Michael Freeman, you did an analysis of cases that cited excited delirium as a cause of in-custody death. What, what did you look at and what did you find? We were looking to find out if there was evidence that excited delirium uh, uh, used as a term actually was associated with some uh, unique ability to cause death or whether it was being used strictly as a proxy for restraint-related death, prone restraint-related death, I should say, when someone is handcuffed uh, face down and often has uh, weight on their back or has their has their feet tied to their hands in what's called hobble restraint. And so we were interested to see what's been established in the literature, and we did a, a, a analysis of uh, every single case that has been published where there was a description of the circumstances uh, surrounding the death and the use of the term excited delirium. And what did you find? We couldn't find any cases where uh, excited delirium was a, a cause of death that was separate from restraint. Uh, the, 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 you could say that what we looked to do was find out whether or not excited delirium caused death or death is what the cause of excited delirium was. That is, it was used only after a death occurred with no evidence that it was present. There's no pathological evidence that uh, uh, excited delirium is a cause of death. There is no actual link uh, physiologically between this concept of excited delirium and uh, how a person might die from it. And so what's going on here? You've said that this directs the gaze away from the cause of death um, to, to, you know, away from from the issue of the restraining personnel. If you're looking at the cause of death, that that citing excited delirium is is a distraction in some ways. Well, precisely. Um, So you have the behavior, which is deemed excited delirium. You have the restraint, which is associated with the behavior, and then you have the death, and the term excited uh, delirium allows you to basically leapfrog over the restraint, which is a, a plausible and realistic and known cause of death, um, as restraint can result in asphyxia and uh, uh, acidosis and other issues that can, uh, can physiologically become a cause of sudden cardiopulmonary collapse. Um, it, our, our gaze, as you say, gets turned away from that, and we look at the event that actually caused the restraint. And that's the problem. This is like waving a, a wand uh, and saying we're, go- we're going to take all the attention off the conduct of the police uh, who were actually hands-on this person when they died and point to something where we have absolutely no evidence. All we have to do is invoke the name. It's like waving a wand and saying abracadabra. There's no real association between the words and the magic trick. In this case, there's no relationship between the term excited delirium and the actual death. Dr. Walker, um, 
you're a pathologist, and so when you're dealing with a case where somebody may have died after uh, an interaction with police, how do you go about determining cause of death? Can you just briefly explain that? So the subspecialty discipline of forensic pathology deals with um, the determination of cause and manner of death. And with these types of cases, as a forensic pathologist, we have to take into consideration the circumstances of death, um, you know, what are described by eyewitnesses, what reviewable evidence uh, is there of the incident, such as video footage, uh, et cetera. And we then perform a post-mortem examination to identify any evidence of injuries, categorize the injuries which are present, any evidence of significant natural disease which could have caused or contributed to death in this scenario, as well as we perform toxicological analysis and any other ancillary investigation which is indicated. Um, so at the end of the day, we have to look at the circumstances, the pathological findings in terms of injuries, natural disease, and any drugs and toxins which are on board and establish a cause of death from clinical pathological considerations. Meaning we have to offer a cause of death that explains the death of the individual in the known circumstances mm. in which they died on the background of their injuries sustained, natural disease, and effect of drugs and toxins. How much currency do you think this phrase and, and, and this concept still has among police and law enforcement in this country? Um, unfortunately, um, I think it's still a, a pervasive uh, concept that will take some time to be eradicated from law enforcement. But hopefully with the... Um, the new position statement, which came out last month by the National Association of Medical Examiners, that, has, that will take the process one step further towards eradicating its use. Dr. Michael There's Friedman, only well, one I, was just, medic- I was just going to ask Dr. Michael Friedman, we're, we're running short of time, but w- w- from your perspective, as somebody who studied this, what have you seen in, in Canada? Because we did ask for comment from the Vancouver Police Department, from the RCMP, about whether they still recognize excited delirium. Uh, we didn't hear back in time for this broadcast, but we do know that the Vancouver Police does mention excited delirium in their training models. So what does that tell you about how police are are dealing with this and dealing with it in a way that uh, reflects that changing thoughts that Dr. Walker has talked about from the National Association of Medical Examiners? Well, I think we are seeing a a change in how the term is being used, certainly medically. The AMA uh, came out and and, uh, issued a position paper saying, we don't recognize excited delirium. It's a source of continued racist uh, uh, discrimination. It's used in a, in a way that that continues to cause problems uh, for people in disadvantaged populations. Um, I, I think that I think that there is a trend that is moving away from it. The biggest problem I see for the police still using it is a failure to recognize that that prone restraint is a potentially dangerous position to keep a person in. And that putting them into a recovery position on their side is something that every police officer needs to know about and needs to be aware because 
it is difficult for someone to breathe. And when someone says, I can't breathe, you have to listen to them. You have to figure out how to get them in a position where they can breathe. And so what more needs to change? Aside from debating the, the efficacy of this term and the value of this term, what more needs to change so that people don't die in those sorts of encounters? I, I think that it is better recognition of the danger of prone restraint. Understanding this is a dangerous uh, position to keep people in potentially, even though very few people die uh, while being in prone restraint, it still has the potential to cause death in some cases. That obviously wasn't the case with uh, with Mr. Gray. I mean, Mr. Gray was, was essentially assaulted to death. We'll leave it there. Um, there is more certainly to come on this uh, in terms of what unfolds in the wake of this inquest and police practices in this country. In the meantime, thank you both for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Dr. Alfredo Walker is a forensic pathologist and coroner for Eastern Ontario, vice chair and director of education at the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at the University of Ottawa. And Dr. Michael Freeman is an associate professor of forensic medicine and epidemiology at Maastricht University in the Netherlands and a professor of forensic psychiatry at Oregon Health and Science University. When you don't vote, you can't sit on a jury. You have no right to complain about the police because you won't even go and vote so you can even sit on a jury. Uh, as I've told, uh, said to the cows when I first started to call in, I spent 11 years on a job where, where I worked for a bank and had to sit in court day after day after day after day. And I watched them select juries. I watched black people going to jail, black people have white, having white probation officers, and the whole judicial system um, just truncated with white supremacy. And a great deal of it, it could have been, some of it could be lessened if black people simply voted. But speaking of judges, if you watch Law & Order or basically any crime procedural, you know how it works. Crime committed, perp accused, dramatic courtroom finale. But in this case, art rarely imitates life. More than 9 in 10 cases end in a plea deal. NPR justice correspondent Carrie Johnson reports on an effort to change that. Robert Rose made one of the most important decisions of his life in 1995. Rose was on trial in New York City for grabbing a gun away from his mother's boyfriend, then shooting and killing the man. Deep into the case, prosecutors offered him a plea deal. You know, this is my first time involved with the criminal legal system, so I just went along with what my attorney was telling me at the time. And I said, you know what, we'll just continue with the trial, which we did. And in the end, I was sentenced to 25 years to life instead of the three to nine years that I was offered. The trial lasted more than a month, and Rose thinks that annoyed other people in the courtroom. And I guess my not wanting to take a plea, you know, frustrated the judge as well as the prosecutor. And as a result, I was punished for, you know, exercising my right to go to trial. Rose was punished. He spent about three times longer in prison for going to trial rather than taking the plea. That happens so often in the justice system that it has a name, the trial penalty. Martine Sabelli is past president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. I've read transcripts in which judges say things like, if you plead before trial, you get mercy. After trial, you get justice. That's a threat. 
Sibeli says the system is most harsh on black and brown people and low-income people, the kinds of people who tend to have less power. Every day, this results in the virtual extinction of criminal trials from our criminal legal landscape and converts our courtrooms into these assembly lines where people are just being brought through one after the other in red, yellow, green, black jumpsuits. Sibeli and a group of other legal and civil liberties advocates are working to focus public attention on the trial penalty, which they say has contributed to the near disappearance of criminal trials in many places. In the federal system, about 98 percent of cases end in plea deals. In big states like Texas and New York, the numbers are similar. And in one county in Arizona, there were no criminal trials at all from 2010 to 2012, according to a recent report from the American Bar Association. Former prosecutor Miriam Krinsky says that's not how the justice system should work. Krinsky now directs the reform-minded group Fair and Just Prosecution. You know, to the extent that there should be some kind of an incentive to plead early and not put survivors or others through the process and the trauma of going to trial, what does that look like? And is something far more modest the right starting point as opposed to that draconian three-time increase and in hammer over somebody's head? Cully Stimson is another former prosecutor and a legal fellow at the Conservative Heritage Foundation, where he writes about crime and justice. Stimson says the system works pretty well as it is. The fact that many cases result in a guilty plea is not a problem because in many cases, and I've been a criminal defense attorney, the person is guilty and they're taking advantage of a plea deal that subjects them to less time. So I don't think there is a trial penalty. I think it's a trial privilege. Stimson says there are lots of good reasons for defense lawyers to encourage their clients to plead guilty. For example, the clients may have a prior criminal record, and a plea bargain may be their only way to win a shorter prison term. But the advocates pressing for change say prosecutors have too much power to stack up charges against defendants and create a situation where they face so much prison time that even innocent people feel pressure to strike plea deals. Rodney Roberts is one of them. It's like I had to choose between two evils. Roberts was just starting out as an adult with custody of his son and a good job at the mall in New Jersey when he was arrested for sexual assault and kidnapping. And months went by and lost a job and apartment. And now I'm like, you know, things are really falling apart in my life. And I'm so worried, you know what I'm saying? My mother worried, everybody like, what's going on? Why are they holding you? Robert says his lawyer told him to take a plea deal, and he had just 25 minutes to decide. He wound up pleading guilty and spending more than 18 years in custody before he was exonerated. Now he works to help people leaving prison transition back into the community and to lobby for overhauling the justice system. Thousands of young men, young women, locked up, over-sentenced, pressured into pleading guilty because the system has to get you because they got to make room for the next person they're going to lock up. They can't just keep the same people stationary. Because where they're going to put the rest they locking up. Changing the system will be a heavy lift. Most criminal cases are brought at the state and local level, so change would have to happen state by state. Legislatures would have to get rid of mandatory minimum prison sentences. Prosecutors would have to reconsider how they charge defendants and how many charges they bring. And defense lawyers would have to reevaluate the advice they give many clients. 
Robert Rose, who spent almost 25 years in New York state prisons after rejecting that plea deal, is finally back home in New York. Looking back, Rose says he probably would take that plea deal today. Probably would. And knowing what I know about the system today, yes, because the system isn't a nice place. You know, it's very debilitating. It strips away all of your humanity. It really makes you something bad. Rose says his mom has dementia. He missed so many years with both of his parents. Now 50 years old, Rose says, his hopes are modest ones. And my dreams are just to be, uh, just to be free, just to be happy, just to live a normal life. I don't think there's a such thing as normal, but just as normal as possible, just be able to function. To listen to the sounds of other languages when he walks down the street, to stroll through the park, to try to do things to help people. Carrie Johnson, NPR News. The man, race, race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. The name of the man who was killed by being put in a chokehold on an F train was Jordan Neely. He was 30 years old. He was known to many subway riders as a Michael Jackson impersonator. Manhattan Borough President Mark Levine knew who Jordan Neely was. Levine tweeted this yesterday, I saw Jordan Neely perform his Michael Jackson routine many times on the A train. He always made people smile. Levine added, our broken mental health system failed him. Listeners, look at the YouTube page, Jordan Neely Legacy, if you want to see videos of his act instead of the video of his death. Jordan Neely was homeless. The New York Times says workers from the Bowery Residence Committee, which does homeless outreach in the subways, had known Neely since 2017, citing a person familiar with his history with social services. So we wanted to give you at least that much about the victim of this killing as a human being before we discuss the incident in legal or broader social and cultural terms. The New York City Medical Examiner has ruled Jordan Neely's death a homicide resulting from compression of his neck. Jordan Neely was black. The man who killed him was white. The freelance journalist who shot the video of the incident that's been circulating online, Juan Alberto Vasquez, says Neely was screaming, quote, in an aggressive manner, said he had no food, he had no drink, that he was tired, and said, I don't mind going to jail and getting life in prison. I'm ready to die. That's a quote, according to the journalist Vasquez, who's also quoting as saying, Neely did not attack anyone, and that the person who restrained him with a chokehold approached him after he threw his jacket to the ground. Again, a quote in the press from the journalist who videotaped the incident. So throwing a jacket on the ground was apparently the last straw for the choker. The choker is not yet being identified by the Manhattan DA's office, which has not filed charges, at least not so far. They say they're investigating. NYPD says the same thing. Press accounts say the choker is a 24-year-old former Marine. So how to think about this incident in terms of criminality or the larger context of life in New York and America today? Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says Jordan Neely was murdered. Mayor Adams says Neely's death is tragic, but let the DA conduct his investigation to decide if it was a murder. 
City Council Speaker Adrian Adams says the legal system's reaction so far has put, quote, on display for the world the double standards that black people and other people of color continue to face. The perceptions of black people have long been interpreted through a distorted, racialized lens that aims to justify violence against us. That from City Council Speaker Adrian Adams. The NYPD quotes witnesses who say Neely was behaving in a, quote, hostile and erratic manner. An organizer named Sarah Newman from the Open Hearts Initiative is quoted on Newsweek.com saying, this killing is a horrifying reminder of how people's perception of safety, feeling uncomfortable or unsettled by another person's behavior, is used to justify very real harm. And she adds that Neely's death underscores a truth that folks who have lived on the streets know especially well. People experiencing homelessness or mental illness are at far higher risk of being harmed than of harming others, unquote. Some interesting notes in the New York Post article on this. We're talking about the New York Post, right? But even the Post calls the choker a wannabe vigilante. The Post also cites the NYPD at first saying Neely had threatened riders, but then they didn't know any specific words that were exchanged. The Nation magazine's justice correspondent, Ellie Mistal, has an article this morning headline, One Man Killed Jordan Neely, But We All Failed Him. Ellie Mistal joins us now. Thanks for coming on with us again, Ellie. Sorry it's under these circumstances. Yeah, hi, Brian. How, how are you? Okay. Um, and I'll note that your article starts with the almost obvious counterfactual. What would the legal system be doing now if it was a black wannabe vigilante who placed a chokehold on a white man behaving erratically but not attacking anyone? Want to go there? I mean, that, that's a fine place to start. There is no version of events where a black man on the subway sneaks up behind a white homeless person i don't care that white homeless person was loud menacing what have you there's no version of events where a black man sneaks up behind that white person chokes them to death in broad view of the other passengers has that murder captured on video and then goes home after a brief chat with police there there's just no version of events where that happens and if you think there is a version of events where that happens like you you need to actually go back to some kind of of school because there there is no lived black experience that would tell you that a black person could get away with doing what this former Marine did. And listeners, um, I want to give that phone number right away because people are already calling in on many of our lines and we do want to make this in addition to whatever conversation that I have with Ellie uh, about anything you want to say or ask about the chokehold death of Jordan Neely, we offer this platform for you as we do. 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. Ellie, you also question whether it's really just mental illness or also a kind of rational response in a way to be screaming in a hostile and erratic way if everyone ignores your existence want to elaborate on that i mean the the this is difficult because i think we as new yorkers we are so inured to the poverty and desperation of others around us we can't 
go through our days in this city, in this wealthy city. We cannot go through our day without seeing the indices of poverty, homelessness, desperation. And so we all develop a kind of defense mechanism, a coping mechanism, if you will, of basically ignoring it, right? Basically putting it out of your mind. We can't live in the cognitive dissonance between us having so much and some people having so little. And I will just to just to take the sting off of it, I'll personalize it to me. I can't live with the cognitive dissonance of that. So I ignore it. I walk past homeless people all the time. I I I am in the process. I have two small children. I have a ten year old and a seven year old. I'm in the process of teaching them to walk past, mm. to ignore the desperation when we're trying to go to freaking the Nintendo store. And so when that is your existence of people, people like me, ignoring you, just refusing to acknowledge that you're there, how, how can you tell me that screaming is the bridge too far? Hmm. How can you tell me that yelling, expressing your desperation for food, how can you tell me that that is not only the bridge too far, but that's the capital crime? That should get you killed because you screamed at, for lack of a better word, jerks like me who were just trying to keep their head down in their iPhone on their way to lunch. I should be screamed at. And the idea, I should be made uncomfortable by that. And the idea that my discomfort is somehow the justification to murder a man, <laughs> it's really it's really hard to, it's, it's, I, 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 I understand that there are people who are going to disagree with me, but I, I, I find that a, a very difficult to, to swallow. So um, people who know your work may be surprised by one of the next things you wrote in your article, which is you write that you have empathy for the choker. And you wonder if he was struggling with mental illness, too, a former soldier reacting with disproportionate violence to a tense but nonviolent situation. Would you elaborate on that? Yeah, Brian. I mean, look, I, the racial politics are the racial politics of the situation, and there's no avoiding that. But when I when I heard that he was potentially and I you know, hasn't been confirmed by the media, so, so I'm kind of go, going off of reports now. But when I heard that he was a former Marine and I thought about what we do to soldiers, how we train, how we change them, how we change their responses, how we change their reactions to things, how we teach them to kill and we teach them to kill, telling them that this is in defense of other people, how we need them in, in some situations to have those skills and then how we dump them back in normal society, peacetime society, so often without the services, the support, the, the counseling, the therapy that they need 
to readjust. Maybe the Choker had hatred in his heart. Maybe the Choker was a bad guy. I don't know. Maybe Neely had hatred. Maybe he was like, I don't know these people as people, right? Um, and, and I don't claim to, and I don't actually think that that's the, that's the important part here, what they were in their other lives. But in this moment, what I see is a soldier, a former soldier who has reacted disproportionately violently to, yes, a tense, but situation that happens on the subway all the time. And I can't help but think and wonder and question whether or not he also had the mental health services that he needed to readjust to living in one of the most densely packed cities in the world. Now that empathy, Brian, that doesn't mean the, that doesn't mean that I don't think that he's criminally responsible for his actions, right? Like yeah. two, two things can be true at the same time, and people need to be able to live. I mean, I think the story demands that people be able to live with nuance and complication and gray, right? Just because he may have been suffering, or I I wonder whether he was suffering um, from his own mental travails, doesn't mean that that's a justification for homicide. But it does mean that it it's a it's it's another aspect of how. Our entire society, certainly our city, has failed in this moment. Big picture from Ellie Mistal, justice correspondent for the nation as he sees it with the shades of gray and everything else. Um, I quoted the post calling the choker a wannabe vigilante, thinking it was kind of a condemnation. You also cite the post calling him a vigilante. But I think you took it more as a compliment. How do you read that word in the post? Yeah, I don't. I, 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 I'm old enough to remember what the New York media, the white New York media, thinks of vigilantes, right? I'm old enough to remember what these people did to Bernard Goetz, right? Bernard Goetz was, a, to me, an evil man who shot four unarmed black people on the subway in 1984, paralyzing one of them and papers like the post ran an entire public campaign defending Getz's uh, crimes as subway vigilanteism. He was trying to defend himself. And so when I hear the word vigilante from the white press talking about a white man who has murdered a black man, I know what they mean by that word. They're not thinking vigilante as in something that needs to be uh, uh, punished by society. They think that they found their white Batman. And, 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 and that, is, that is an aspect of the story that I am trying, and I think you hear from my analysis, Brian, I am trying hard not to graft what people like the New York Post are going to try to do onto whatever motivations this ex-Marine had, right? I'm trying to keep those two things mm -hmm. separate in my mind. What these people think he was doing versus what he thought he was doing may well be two different things. But Lord knows, um, I, I, see, I see what the New York Post is going to try to do coming from a mile away. So legally speaking, uh, the Bernhard Getz 
case for a lot of our listeners who weren't even alive when that happened 40 years ago. God, I'm so old. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He was a white man who had been previously mugged. And when four young black males approached him on the subway and asked, how you doing, and asked for $5, he shot them, anticipating that he was going to be mugged, according to him. And long legal story short, he was found not guilty. With your lawyer's hat on, can you explain New York law as it applied to that case and how it might apply to this? Yeah, the Bernard Getz case to me is a classic case of jury nullification. The man attempted to murder those black people, but he was let off by a jury of his of his peers, of his overwhelmingly white peers, who decided that shooting black people who bother you on the subway isn't actually a crime. And so when we think about what might happen to this ex-Marine, that thought still holds true. Choking black people to death who bother you on the subway might not be a crime in this city. And even if they're, even if he's charged with a crime by DA Alvin Bragg, a jury of his peers might well say, well, that guy was scary and he got what was coming to him. And look, I want to say again, like I said, this is an area of gray. Had I been on the subway, I would have been scared too. We live in a in a, in a violent society, and I don't think that that violence is because the subway is inherently violent. I think it's a violent society because the NRA and Republican gun laws have turned the society into a war zone. But given the proliferation of, gun, of guns, given the proliferation of mass shootings, had I been on the subway in that moment, I also would have been afraid. Fear, and now I'm putting the legal hat on, is not a justification for homicide. We do not live in a, we are not precogs. We are not Miss Cleo. We do not live in a world where you can murder somebody because of what they might do, right? And trust me, trust me, y'all don't want to live in a world where I can murder somebody because of what they might do to me in the future, or you can murder somebody because of what they might do to you in in the future. That is not, that world, Brian, makes New York City itself an unworkable proposition, okay? If we are literally going to live with 8 million of our citizens and be able to kill each other based on what another one of us may do, could do, looks like they're about to do, that, that would make the entire city unworkable. So no, as the medical examiner has, ru- has ruled it a homicide, legally the question will be whether or not that hom- homicide is justified the fact that he was frightening people, and I am taking their the, 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 the strap hanger side on that one, uh, not that I personally believe it, but let's just go with the report. Mm-hmm. The fact that he was allegedly frightening people is not a justification for homicide. Now, what kind of a homicide is this? Again, with the legal hat on, I see manslaughter as opposed to murder, just eyeballing it from the video, from the whatever, the key difference in a kind of legal weedy way is uh, murder requires a real intent to kill manslaughter doesn't necessarily require that intent and at some level again when i say new york city failed this man it is the actions of the other passengers that i think knocks this down to manslaughter because as the reporter who took the video said as opposed to helping the guy they didn't think they were killing him there was uh, the same reporter said, uh, I read in one of the stories about it, that another passenger 
stepped over the lifeless body and said, he'll be all right. Like, we, for, I, I don't it. know I saw it. why happened. we're like this, but we don't seem, not everybody has gotten the memo that chokeholds can kill. And so when they saw it, I don't know if they thought they were watching like the WWE or something, but as they saw it happening, not everybody on the train even registered that what they were seeing was death. Warren, so, go ahead. Do you want to finish the thought? So, I, so I just want. To, so, so I think that that the killer will have just based on the reaction of the other passengers passengers alone a credible case to say that he didn't intend to kill the man. He and that's why I say this. I this cons to me more like manslaughter, which is um, a, a, a non-justifiable homicide, but one that doesn't involve quite the same level of intent, one that r involves kind of questions of recklessness mm -hmm. or, or intent to do something inherently dangerous, but not the intent to kill. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Black male privilege, they should make that a day. Black male privilege day. We can celebrate all of the privileged niggers, Jordan Neely and the like myself, old worthless Gusty. Our weekly compensatory call in, hopefully share a few constructive bits of information, help folks, non-white people, victims of racism, learn what white supremacy racism is and how it works. This is our Derby edition, Saturday, May 6, 2023. So I have been told, Derby edition, man, I got that. Can I do the dirt on my shoulders again? Should I still do that? Still do that? I had people email me, social media message me, and I, you know, I hate all that stuff, but they did message me with constructive things, so this was positive. But I had several folks message me throughout the last 24 hours. Oh, my goodness. The Kentucky Derby. I heard them play my old Kentucky home. They had all the details. said, man, they got horses dying out here. Man, we can't even keep track. You can go look, and you'll see the people online say, oh, my God, five horses have died this week. And you see the next one, oh, my God. Six horses have died this week at the Kentucky Derby. And then I came and posted today. Seven horses have died this week at the Kentucky Derby. Seven. They still had the game. Race. They still played my old Kentucky home. Matter of fact, we had a Cows listener message me and say, they had old Emmett, Emmett Smith at Emmett Hill. Come on. They didn't have him at the Kentucky Derby. Not welcome. They had Emmett Smith, who also would not have been welcome two years back. They had Emmett Smith, retired tackle football player, victim of brain damage for sure. He commented about that recently and said, oh, my God, honest about, you know, what I've done, what's in my future. Brain damage, already there probably. Anyway, speaking of brain damage, 
So he's at the Kentucky Derby today, victim of racism, black male. He says, uh, man, the way they're getting the horses ready for the race, that's like the warm-ups we used to do to get ready to go out and play a little brain damage. I mean, tackle football. Victims guaranteed qualified. I don't want to ever hear again. Emmett Smith, he doesn't suffer from brain damage. Contraire, mon frere, victim of white supremacy, the great Emmett Smith, no tackle football, no horse race. I said, man, you heard in the report, they said it's on life support metaphors. Why do they even still have, when he talked all that in that NPR report about horse race, hard to let it go. That's the history of the development of this part of the world, the frontier, the white man on his horse. Man, what you're talking about is white supremacy racism, buddy. Make it clear. We had an investor. She said, man, Gus, doing all this time talking about horses. I think victims of racism, black people, we got a much deeper history. Canines, water, you know, they don't let us learn to swim, drown, all that. We did the whole program talking about uh, dogs, canines, two of those, (laughs) white dog and everything. Man, the horsey is right there. And I put, man, you think about what he said. So the horse was an integral part of the slave patrol. Following the evolution, the horse continues to be an integral part of the police department, even in the 21st century. Remember, Thomas in New York told us he stole a police horse. The horse prominently featured throughout the so-called civil rights movement. You see Bloody Sunday. You see race soldiers. (laughs) That's my name, my name for the horse. They got lots of those pictures. Old John Lewis, the late could have been trampled to death. I mentioned Minister Malcolm X. He didn't just say that they came, Klansmen, crosses, fire, terrorized his whole family. Once again, they were on horseback. And in Emily Bingham's book, Privileged White Woman, she was just on the cow days ago talking about my old Kentucky home, Kentucky Derby, white supremacy racism, She said those Confederate monuments, many of them, maybe the majority of them, it's not just a white man, it's a white man on a horse. That's not an accident. That's deliberate. That's what they were getting at, but not calling it white supremacy racism. The whole manifest destiny, how do you do that? They didn't have trains. They didn't have cars. They didn't have buggies. They didn't have Uber. They didn't have scooters. Mr. Ed, my horse, my stallion, Rocky Balboa, man, what's his nickname? This Italian stallion. Why is that so crucial to racist man, racist woman? Get out of it. Why does Peter even allow this in the name of Mike Vick? Don't you ever bring his name up again around me. We care about our hounds. Can't get out there and do that, man. You should be the first ones out there every year. Lock me up, put me in jail. We sabotaging everything. Over my dead body, you're going to run this race again. Seven horses died this week. Last time, buddy. 
They know how to do it quick. Remember that? They went out and protested Michael Vick for years. Same intensity. I'm vegan five years. That's disgraceful. Seven horses. One horse die would be too many. Seven, and you still have the race? Come on. And sing my old Kentucky home on top of it. Probably had camera Emmett Smith singing too. Victim. Victim. Hopefully he wasn't singing that, man. Victim. CTE. Okay. Let's see. The number, if you have commentary to share, 605-313-5164. Decode 564-943. Pound. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. We'll be here again on Monday, one day off, and then back at it Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I cannot wait. White, wait, white guests only. Hopefully constructive information, some similar delectable Negro, delectable Negro. Mm, mm, mm. Monday, 8 Oh, okay. I think I accidentally struck my mute button. Try and be more careful with my mitt. So once again, 8 p.m. Eastern, Monday, looking forward to it, white guests only. Uh, and then it's so related. Not Well, yeah, it is related. Not like direct subject matter, but it is related. White supremacy, racism, and then the great equalizer, white man with a gun and a horse sometimes. I was debating whether or not when we read Negroes with Kinky Hair in Brazilian soccer, saying that should be our one mandatory book for the cows, that it should be one book per year should be mandatory because reading is so important. Dr. Welsing encouraged this all the time. Work that brain computer, read some nonfiction, not just, you know, old shaft and Iceberg Slim and the Hate You Give, read some nonfiction so that we can learn, exercise our brain computer. I almost picked that book on Brazil, which was so provocative for me, more to come. Columbine, we read one half, and I was very sad. We should read one just at minimum. This is such an important event. It has had such an enormous impact on the world. As counter-racist, attempted counter-racist scientists, we should know some details about this case. Al Sharpton went to Colorado, like all of the things that have happened where this case is mentioned all the time, all over the world. Our only source of information should not be bowling for Columbine. I'm not judging anyone. That was Gus T. Renegade. That's embarrassing. That should not be our only source of information. At minimum, as we read this book, 
just count how many times you hear Hitler's name. Already at two. We've only had one session. Mandatory Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Again, this is not my, you know, see if I can get more listeners and all of that. Not at all. Reading is important. We are not well informed. Our white guests keep telling us this in very explicit terms. Black people are stupid. They don't even say non-white people. They mean black people specifically are stupid. Part of correcting that problem, work our brain computer and do some reading and thinking about what we read. Maybe even write a review. Research what we read. Is it true what we're being told? All of that. Even the small detail. Columbine High School, they didn't tear it down. I think that's important, even though white people are still debating that it's going on 30 years. Columbine High School, the rebel, that's one, but the mascot for the school, a white man toting a gun. I had to look about Mm, good ten times or so. Find a bunch of images. Make sure I didn't stumble on the nigger web. I mean, dark web. Get me with one of those old deep fakes. The mascot for the Columbine rebels, a white man with a gun at a high school that was constructed because white people did not want to be around niggers in Denver Public School, in the book we read in the first section when I said, dang, this should be the mandatory read. The school where those white boys carried out this shooting was literally built because white people did not want their children in school with Negras in Denver, Colorado. That's where the shooting happened. Shooting and bombing happened, and the mascot is a white man with a gun. Hmm. Hmm. I don't think I need a whole lot of analysis as to why this would happen. In fact, Eric Harris, Dylan Klebold, I would just have to double-check to make sure I got the correct white killer. I think it was Eric Harris. His nickname was Rebel. So we're reading about a white boy and his white friend nicknamed Rebel who attended a high school with a mascot named Rebel, a white man with a gun where he decided, hey, I'm a white rebel too, and I'm mad. I'm going to get a gun too. We'll learn a little bit about everything. Columbine. And we're reading this, one, because we just passed April 20 when this happened. That's one. But the other is because they mentioned this in Brazil while we were reading. The school attack in Brazil, 2019. They said that's the worst in the country's history. They were inspired. That's not even the correct word, but inspired, in quotes, by old Eric Harris, rebel, Dylan Klebold. I don't even think these folks in 
South America were born when that happened, but they were inspired. Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. If you need to catch up, we just did one episode that was very interesting. Number again, 605-313-5164. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Let's see. Uh, notes on the reports that we heard. See if I can get through promptly. No disrespect to Emmett Smith, Cowboys fans, Texas, Gators, great state of Florida. I'm sure he's in the Florida Hall of Fame, Sports Hall of Fame. Let's see. The report where they talked about the impact of loneliness and it being similar to people who are chronic cigarette smokers, that I thought was so important, and especially the system of white supremacy racism, in my view, a big part of it, you can think of pool. Yes, pool, I was correct the first time, billiards. Dr. Welding wrote about this. You really want to isolate that black ball. That's how this system operates, if you think about it. They use that old cliche, divide and conquer, and all of that of keeping non-white people in conflict with each other. But, I mean, even if you just think about greater confinement, you get more and more Khalif Browder. Get them confined and far away, too. Great distance. We're not going to have you in confinement where you're just, you know, five miles from where you grew up at, all your relatives and everybody. They can just walk to come visit you whenever they want. Oh, no. We might put you in another state or at least put you on the opposite end of the state. Take two days' drive to get there, that type of thing. Make it expensive to call you on the phone, all that. We've had reports about that. This system is about white supremacy racism, isolating non-white people. Make it easier to mistreat. We even had some of our guests who talked about sometimes non-white people have been being constructive, not feuding and fussing and fighting trying to be logical, focused on solving this problem. Whoa, 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 whoa. Break that up. Move this nigger to Kentucky. Put this nigger in Colorado. Put this nigger in Florida. Put this one in Arkansas. There we go. There we go. Calm all that down. We've had people say that. Workplace racism. We all get along. Break all that up. Put her on the 43rd floor. Put her in the basement. Put her in the attic and fire her. They do, and particularly with regards to counter-racism, Dr. King, there are biographies, plural, where they talk about him being depressed in the last year of his life, lots of name-calling, conflict with other non-white people, same thing with Minister Malcolm, the last year of his life. That is consistent with non-white people who attempt to counter racism. It can be very difficult. White people can do the same, isolate you, put you in greater confinement. Geronimo Pratt. 27 years, a lot of that solitary confinement. So whether it, that's why Mr. Fuller calls it greater confinement. They can do a lot of that isolating where they just say that you are, you know, militant, crazy, angry black dude, angry black woman. You know, you can't pay attention to anything they got to say. 
you know, that's where we even have family members who dismiss you and don't want to listen to you. Yours truly, Gusty included. That happens to lots of non-white people. So lots of us suffer from being isolated, not having people to talk to. That is a deliberate part of this system. Part of the reason that we have this program specifically, compensatory call-in, it was engineered to allow for non-white people dial in, exchange views on racism, white supremacy, something we don't have a luxury, I'm using that word deliberately, don't have that opportunity frequently. People that we're around, non-white people, even our attempted family, often confused about racism. So many, many people have said they can't really share these views. I think that's important that that has a health image. Even they talked about the neurological impact of being lonely. Another piece of motivation for us to try to solve this problem, get back some constructive relations with people, not all these tragic arrangements and such conflict. Uh, let's see. They talked about the big jewelry sale, Christie's, uh, Heidi Horton, talking about how much did she know she married uh, this race soldier, took advantage, Nazi Germany, get all this loot, make these so-called Jews sell at a low price, same type of thing that we heard with purges and when they drive out all the Negroes in an area, they'll call it a so-called fire sale metaphor. So, well, how much did she know? If you got all that money, man, you can ask all the questions, commission all the studies that you need. Take all the trips, investigate, private investigator. I mean, are you serious? Come on. Come on. Every, every time, it's, well, did this white person really know? Well, maybe, maybe she was ignorant about all this. But it was well documented. Now, now, press covered all this very well, where all this wealth loot came from. The greatest looters in the history of the known universe are classified as white. I loved the detail that they included. They said the auctions. They should have had echo on that. The auctions. They are not known for morality, discretion. They will auction anything, chamber pot, nigger woman, nigger child, anything. Got it, got it, got it. Uh, let's see. They talked about Mumia uh, Abu-Jamal, the great Pennsylvanian, <laughs> was just talking about Move and sue Africa this week. Uh, it is uh, indelibly sketched in my brain computer. Still thorns to Africa. Anyway, Mumi Abu-Jamal was talking about Matulu Shakur and saying that he was in the Black Liberation Army and that they helped liberate uh, Asada Shakur so that she could be free in Cuba. I thought that was inaccurate. If there is a system of white supremacy in place and that dominates the known universe, certainly this planet they call Earth, there is no way Asada Shakur or anyone else is so-called free. Not liberated, not, not, I mean, Asada Shakur, unless I'm like super ignorant, isn't she still on the most wanted terrorist list? Ain't no way in the Christ you're going to tell me that this person is free. They got me on the terrorist list. I set foot in Dade County. Mecklenburg County, 
watching, I want to go to the African-American Museum, and they have SWAT team snatch me up, that's not free. Free me, I can do whatever I want to. Go where I want to, chill, come back, see my family, visit, whatever I want to. I don't think that qualifies for a side of Shakur. Strive for accuracy. Uh, let's see. They said that Matulu Shakur got ghetto love. As a worthless Negro from Virginia, I do not know anything about ghetto love. That being said, Levy Fuller does say uh, love is synonymous with justice. If you don't have justice, you don't have love. He does say that often. It's in the code book. That's it. Ghetto love, whatever that is, is not worth a pecan. Just making statements. I don't know anything about that. If anybody has got a teaspoon of ghetto love in their life, please break down what that is and how it's constructed. But I'm just taking the position. Ghetto love, whatever that is, is not worth a pistachio system of white supremacy racism. Switch up my nuts there. Let's see. That report on China, my goodness. They didn't even include when Brazilian President Lula da Silva went over there and met with uh, Xi Jinping. Forgive me for pronunciation. I'm still learning. Said, man, we need to get up off of this dollar. It's not going to have us hamstrung forever. They got other currency in the world. What do you think, my non-white brother? White people were furious. That was literally just a couple of days ago. I said that study on Brazil, so provocative. They didn't even mention that. But white people were furious. That was lots of media outlets talk about that. And then in addition to, they are trying to step on the so-called world stage and intervene in the Ukraine situation and what is going on. They even used our verb, emboldened. Noun, excuse me, they are emboldened. I said, man, I generally only hear about race soldiers being emboldened. One, I never hear about the Negroes have been emboldened. I didn't hear that during any of the eight years of the Obama reign, that Negroes have been emboldened. Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? We got all these emboldened dark people? I didn't hear that one time. This, I think, might even be the first time that I have heard non-white people anywhere in the universe have been emboldened. Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? We got the emboldened Chinese. Oh, oh, we got the plan. They even said, they said, uh, Washington, how worried is Washington about China emboldened? Strive for accuracy. I don't think they mean how worried is Neely Fuller Jr., Longtime Washington, D.C. resident, I don't think they mean, how is old Fuller? How worried is he about the Chinese? Shout to Fuller, but I don't, I don't think that's what they meant. I think they meant white people. How worried are white people in Washington, D.C. about China, non-white people? And did you hear how they, when they got to, well, what, what is all this about? This conflict, what is the nature of this conflict? They said it is about democracy or autocracy. What? 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 All of that. What? 
Where is the democracy? Because we got a system of white supremacy. Or I don't what what. And then they they couldn't even stick with that, so they moved. And then they said, well, what what is it? Is it the economic system? Is it worldview? What is? This is a racial competition. This is white people against non-white people. Period. Got to get that sound clip of Minister Macker. He had concluded that much accurately about 60 years ago. That's what the problem is. These individuals are not white. Democracy versus autocracy. They just throw these terms out there. That's the problem. They don't believe in democracy in China. And they got us with the road. I told you. Let's see. When they talked about the power grids back in Moore County, North Carolina, that's another one with the words. They said extremists. Talked about all these upgrades that got cameras and patrols and all that. That's great. Wonderful. Extremists. What? That's kind of vague. Because people name call and say, I'm an extremist and a militant, all the rest of it. Al Sharpton is an extremist, you know. When it's with these power groups, the group that they've talked about specifically, racist, white supremacist, Turner Diaries, one more time. And again, these little white boys that we're reading about, Eric Harris, Rebel, Dylan Klebo, this is the same ilk. Like their cousins and homies, they are the folks that would be doing this. Anyway, so we got the extremists, Moore County. We heard about the excited delirium. The American Medical Association has rejected this as a diagnosis and connected it to racism. I was stymied by that because that report was from CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Company. I went to double check. That is true. The American Medical Association, same organization that dissed Dr. Welsing all those decades ago, they have rejected publicly excited delirium and have connected it with, uh, with racism in their rejection of this as an official diagnosis, legitimate diagnosis. Hmm. Enforcement officers, race soldiers, ex it just ignore established medical science when it is convenient for killing Negroes or anyone else, but mostly Negroes, Negro males to be specific. Not that I needed someone to validate to tell me that, yes, excited delirium, that is not legitimate for police purposes. Sounded like draftomania, kind of, but let's see. When they talked about the segment about there are there is an absence of trials, most people take plea deals. They've been talking about that for a long time. I think that's in Ava DuVernay's documentary. They talk about Khalif Browder and all the rest. They pressure lots of dark people uh, into taking these plea deals. Uh, happened with the Central Park Five. They come in and do all this pressuring. You don't have a parent and all that sometimes, no re representation, they can lie, do all these other things. Uh, if everybody got a trial, everybody got to go the O.J. Simpson route, maybe even got a quality Johnny Cochran attorney too, how many judges would be required? How many courtrooms? How many juries? How much time 
and energy. This is supposed to be a prompt process. I don't even think this would work. If you're not going to do any, please, everybody's getting a trial. I mean, they would have – the system would be shut down. It would be endlessly clogged with the number of people that get arrested and all of that. But, I mean, it would have to be – we're going to have to do something else. We're going to have to let a lot of these people go, not charge them, whatever. This system would not work at all. The amount of, the amount of non-white juveniles alone that they charge would probably be enough to shut all of this down if they got a trial, all of them. Let's see. The subway choking of Jordan Neely by white man, Marine, 24-year-old Daniel J. Penny. It's once again at the hands of persons unknown. It is staggering the number of times that a white person can kill a non-white person and they do not get named for an inordinate amount of time. Like there will be news reports in Brooklyn, they haven't been charged, so we're not going to name them, even though they have killed her. Remember, they did that with Renisha McBride for quite some time. It was Theodore Wafer was not immediately identified. He blew Renisha McBride's brain literally all over his yard. It took quite some time before they identified him. At the, I just read that book today. He was a guest on our program not that long ago, Philip Dre, at the hands of persons unknown. Anyway, so Daniel J. Penny, Marine, chokes to death. Jordan Neely on video. I tweeted out, I'm sure folks remember Corey Stingley, black male, he was a teenager in Wisconsin, choked to death for stealing liquor, allegedly, at a convenience store. He was choked to death also on camera. No one ever charged, indicted for the death of this uh, teen. Teens are known to do that sort of goofy, stupid thing. I didn't know it was uh, death, immediate death sentence, by the way, from citizens, not even enforcement officers, just random citizens, just like with Jordan Neely, but publicly executed on camera. Once again, black male privilege. Anywho, uh, in the segment, on Jordan Neely, I thought it was so, what shall I say, significant. Ellie Mistel was the speaker on WNYC Black Mail, and he said that a passenger stepped over Mr. Neely's body, and he'll be all right. Negro is next. He said that, you know, we don't realize, we don't have empathy, and just not even recognize this guy's dead. Same thing I said with Emmett Smith, victims guaranteed qualified, VGQ. I submit that is not what the problem, that's not what the what is occurring. This is a system of white supremacy racism. Individuals classified as black, especially privileged black males, are not valued. Who cares? I don't care if he is the potential rapist, looter, mugger, rapist, got to say that one two times. Who cares if he does? Good riddance. 
Give him a medal. That's what we trained him to do as a Marine. I found it staggering in that segment. He talked about he had empathy for Mr. Penny, who wasn't even named. An unnamed white killer gets more empathy and humanity than dead black people, dead black males, black people in general, but dead black males. He's a soldier, maybe he has PTSD, even though he said consistently, you know, hey, nuance, shades of gray. Didn't they make a book out of that with all that sexual? That's that it, right? Yeah, Fifty Shades of Gray. Yeah. I don't think that's what they meant, maybe. They do got the choking in the minute. Anyway, uh, made me lose my train of thought, metaphor. Uh, but we got all this empathy for an unnamed white killer that maybe he has PTSD, Chris Kyle. What we, he said, we, there we go again. We, I did not train Daniel J. Penny to do nothing. The system of white supremacy, U.S. military apparatus specifically, they trained him, subjected him to whatever Maybe even taught him that chokehold specifically. And even I was reminded Dr. Gerald Horn in The Bittersweet Science, he was talking about the homoeroticism and all that, but he said that the system of white supremacy has a consistent cowardly element to it. You're a trained killer as a Marine. They said he snuck up on Jordan Neely from behind and then choked him out. What kind of – you got to sneak up on somebody. Oh, nigga threw his jacket down. He said, that's the last straw. Metaphor. We don't allow reckless, aggressive garment tossing around here. I got to sneak up on the nigga. He's wily, cagey, dangerous. Same thing that he did say I do agree with. If a white, excuse me, if a black passenger had snuck up on him, particularly a black male with some sort of training, law enforcement, military training, and he snuck up on a white man who threw down his cardigan aggressively, I cannot, you want to talk about the lived experience, my lived Negro experience, I cannot imagine a galaxy where anybody, it would have been, oh, man, unnamed Leroy, I bet he's got a little PTSD. Matter of fact, I remember this. We were talking about Christopher Dorner when he went on that killing spree in Southern California a decade ago and spent 10 years. I don't remember people call, coming out and talking, particularly on mainstream white-dominated media. Said, man, oh, Christopher Dorner. He's got PTSD, man. What, what the military did to him, I'm not saying he should have killed those officers, but, man, he, he was failed, you know? This is what we do to our soldiers, man. We got to do better, man. Y'all remember that one? Folks who were alive 10 years ago, Chris Dorner, you remember that? Come on, come on. And I don't remember him sneaking up on video and choking people out. He was a wanted fugitive. We got to get him. Let's see. 
and even the lived white experience, because he said that, he said the lived black experience, we couldn't imagine a black person being able to do this. No. What is the lived white experience? White people know good and well. They couldn't imagine a universe. They could be doing anything. It is not going to be tolerated for some Negro to sneak up on them from behind and choke them out and then not be charged. We don't even name Leroy. Come on. White people know the world they have created, that would not be accepted anywhere in the galaxy. Let's see. There were a number of metaphors, and she already said shades of gray and the last straw. Uh, they murky. That was even one amongst many. Murky. I had to stop and look that one up. They said murky is dark and gloomy, especially due to thick mist, not fully explained or understood, especially when concealed dishonesty or immorality. Now, they use murky in talking about did Heidi Horton, did her husband, did he use some nefarious acts to pressure these so-called Jews to sell their jewels and businesses and such. They said, here, it gets murky. Categorized all this as the dark history. We got the nigger web where they got the deep fakes and everything. All of this is white history, white looting, white nefarious activity. And even really the nigger web, that's where a lot of individuals classified as white go for criminal activity. White collar crime. The number is 605-313-5164. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. We'll be here Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, White guests only. Oh, yes. Invest, listen, or support it. Counter Racist Radio. Get the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button in the top right corner. You'll see the links for PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, much obliged to all the investors who have kept us broadcasting 14-plus years. Hopefully, we have been worthy of your time and energy. All right. Let's see if folks have commentary. Have you, have you ever, folks, say that you've been emboldened or have you heard that term applied to anyone other than individuals classified as a white my first time ever hearing that term applied to non-white people. Let's see. Folks who dialed in with a hand up, proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, Non-Clemson grad, new father, uh, much obliged. Uh, yes, uh, good evening to all. Um, 
Hope everyone is having a uh, evening to the best, a good evening to the rest of the, um, the rest of their ability. Um, I'll start by answering your question about the being emboldened thing. Um, usually, when I hear the phrase emboldened, it's usually in the way that it was described in the broadcast from earlier. Usually, it's the United States talking about other non-white countries doing things that they feel those non-white countries should not do. Um, and of course, with the fact that China has been um, not um, that China has been doing things that the United States does not like, that uh, potentially or outright challenges the United States power, um, they're starting to use uh, stronger and stronger language um, about China. So much so that I don't know how it is for people where they live, but when you start hearing local politicians talking about foreign affairs, even though they themselves don't vote on any kind of laws that affect foreign affairs, it's uh, very, very interesting. Um, I'll talk about two of the stories. Um, the first one I'll talk about is the one from Columbine. Um, Missy and I were definitely listening to the first broadcast about the Columbine book. Uh, we had to, we actually re-listened to it earlier today. And one of the things we wondered was that obviously, for example, there was the bomb that was placed inside the um, the school that was supposed to take out hundreds of people, and the ones that survived were supposed to get um, picked off. And one of the things we wondered was that what would this world look like if that bomb actually would have went off, and hundreds of students would have been killed in that in that school versus just the, I think what twelve or thirteen that were killed? Do you uh, do we? I wonder if the idea of, of of terrorism would have stuck to those white males, let alone to white males in general, even though there's more than enough clear evidence. And would it have even, um, and how epic would it have been compared to something like 9/11 if that bomb would have went off in that school? Um, and personally, one of the things I noted was that, um, you know, the way they talked about those boys, you know, white violence in itself is not shocking. But, you know, they actually seemed to get along with their classmates and do things. They weren't just so-called loners that came out of nowhere. People in this school actually knew them and interacted with them before they seemed to come out of nowhere and do what they did. Um, the second story with the, um, Mr. Um, Jordan Neely. Um, my wife and I just got back from New York City uh, about a week and a half ago to visit my mother and sisters because they still live in New York City. And one night, my wife and I were getting back on the train, and um, one um, on a train, you see some very interesting thing, um, very interesting things. I was born and raised there. Um, <laughs> you you see things, you mind your business, um, but I can't really say that there's ever been a time personally I've worried about being um, injured or killed on the subway, except when I see police officers. Matter of fact. One, um, well, I imagine if you are a black person, maybe you've been hemmed up by the police for no good reason. It's definitely happened to me. Um, but I remember certain situations, for example, where um, you try to go into the train station, especially in Harlem, and the police will be there and say that um, they want to check your bags. And if they don't allow, if you don't allow them to check your bag, they say you got to go to a different train station. I cannot imagine anywhere else in New York. Um, sorry, in the city of New York where you were on the Upper East or Upper West Side, where the cops would have said to the white people, if you don't allow us to check your bags, you've got to go to another train station, which is definitely inconvenient. But getting back to the, um, the Neely thing, one of the things 
there was a man while we were getting back on a train several um, while we was in New York City. Um, he was clearly having a mental episode. We had just got on a train on 96th Street on the um, four on the four five six line, and this man was talking about uh, his sexual history, um, how he was having sex with grown men as a young boy. This man was not just clearly mental. Um, he was clearly gay, but he was also clearly mentally um, had some mental issues. And he was walking back and forth in the train car, um, clearly making people uncomfortable with some of the things he was saying. Now, um, if anyone has any experience in New York or with New York uh, New Yorkers, New Yorkers respond to certain things a certain way, especially when you hear things that are sexually inappropriate, um, which in my opinion, because I grew there, is very, very funny. But if you took the time to actually listen to some of the things that this man was discussing in that moment, it was clearly... It was clear that this man was a was a victim of rape, but in that moment, not for a moment. Though I might have been annoyed by some of the stuff he might have been saying, or maybe amused by it, did I ever feel because my wife was with me? Nor did we feel for a moment that this man was a danger to anyone in the train. It didn't happen. Um, there was another time where someone was like, "Hey, I'm about to light up a um, light up weed or something like that. If you don't like the smell, I warn you now. Get out the train car." Now, firstly, I don't like the um, smell of weed, um, but I, uh, me and my wife, we left the train car because we don't like that smell. But the idea that we felt like we were in immediate danger, that's just not it, – it, no, we didn't feel that. These are just the kind of things you have uh, – that you see in the New York City subway. Um, and there were plenty of things while we were there for the week and a half we were there that were like, yeah, people clearly having mental episodes. It, it's been happening for years, even decades. But in my personal opinion, in my experience, the thing that I've always been worried about was always the police, not the people having mental issues. Um, so the idea that someone like um, Jordan Neely um, was a potential threat to anyone just because he was screaming for food, that happens not only all the time in New York City, but even here where I live in South Carolina, there are people on the street doing that um, out here as well, too, and I imagine it's happening in other places around the country as well, too, because there's more homeless people, there's more people with mental issues, and just because you have mental issues doesn't mean you, um, you don't need food, and people are constantly begging. Now, I'm not saying you have to help every person that you see. You do what you can, but there are plenty of these people around, and under the logic that the man, um, I think you said the black man, I, I missed his name, talked about like, you know, um, you know, someone's having a mental episode as a, a potential excuse to kill someone, there'd be a lot of dead people in the streets right now, just not just in New York City, not just in the New York City subway, but definitely all over this country. And with that I'll mute my line. Much obliged non Clemson grad, Miss C Alex Murdoch's neighbors standing by him, his innocence. Incidentally, he talked about the uh, booby trap, the bomb was supposed to be, the shooting was just like the opening in their massacre. The real terrorism was supposed to be the bomb that was going to get the first responders, police officers, and medical responders, and all of that. I totally forgot to include yesterday that is Eric Rudolph. Only my last year, so I said, I don't do true crime and studying these killers and what have you. But, I mean, that's, the 90s is such an amazing decade. But, I mean, the Olympic Park bombers, 
or the Olympic Park bombing and bomber Eric Rudolph. That's what he was doing. The other bombs that he did, I believe, in Alabama where he was bombing abortion clinics and what have you, it took them a while to figure out. And I think some of them, because for whatever reason, they didn't detonate correctly or somebody parked and messed up the trajectory of the blast, but it was the same thing. He would have the first bomb that would go off, maybe kill one person, two people, injure somebody or whatever. But the real terrorist response or act was supposed to be the second bomb. The police arrived, responders and everybody, and bang, that one can go off and you can kill way more people. But then he was functioning. Mid, the Olympics were bombed in 1996, one year after McVeigh, and then I think he had a few other, because it took a while before they caught him, he had a few other attacks, I think, at the abortion clinics in uh, Alabama, I believe, and some other locations in the South. But that's, that is Eric Rudolph, white man, white supremacist, explicitly right in the same ilk with Timothy McVeigh, and I think even the religion of white supremacy. I didn't even, I didn't, if you had asked me, is Eric Rudolph a white supremacist? I'm like, well, uh, he's white, but like, no, 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 explicit, like, oh, yeah, religion of white supremacy, documented white people have written reports about this and all of that. <sighs> Let's see. Other folks who dialed in, commentary to share. Proceed. May I be heard? Lauren, yes, ma'am. Um, yes, sir. Good evening, everyone. I saw some interesting articles in the paper over the last week. Um, the first one uh, was a report that two 10-year-old children were working in a Kentucky McDonald's. Um, there were other young people, teenagers, found working in restaurants and um, food places, but I thought the two 10-year-olds, that was important. And also, there was another article, it was in The Guardian, and it was titled, Chili Willy Photo of Phallic Iceberg off Canadian Coast Prompts Merriment. And it looked like um, just a large white penis. And there was an entire article about it. There was all sorts of uh, penile jokes in the newspaper. So I thought that was super interesting. Today, um, the segments you played where they talked about, um, hold on, excited delirium. I wasn't even familiar with that. So I got on the Internet. And they were saying, um, hold on, that a 2020 investigation by the UK's forensic science regulator found that the diagnosis should not have been used since it has been applied in some cases where other important pathological mechanisms such as positional asphyxia, uh, I didn't say that correctly, asphyxia, and trauma may have been more appropriate. In the U.S., a diverse group of neurologists, I don't know what they mean by diverse, Writing for the Brookings Institution called it a misappropriation of medical terminology used by law enforcement to legitimize police brutality and to retroactively explain certain deaths occurring in police custody. 
And it did say the American Psychiatric Association's position is that the term is too nonspecific to meaningfully describe and convey information about a person. So um, I thought I would share that with you guys. Um, let me see. Um, I I took a lot of notes about the Jordan Neely part and um, when he wrote that he had empathy for the choker and he wondered if he had mental problems too. Um, he was talking about soldiers and he said, we teach them to kill, telling them, telling them this is in defense of other people. Um, and I thought, you know, that's a description of all soldiers, especially race soldiers, and that's why he had those sorts of feelings when he saw the action that he took. Um, in that article, in that segment, um, he also said, choking black people to death who bother you on the subway might not be a crime. Um, I, I think that's an accurate statement. If you're a white person, he also said the NRA has turned this society into a war zone. Um, I don't think that's the most accurate way to say that. Um, maybe you know white people have turned this planet into a war zone. Maybe that would be more accurate. I. I don't know. Um, oh, and he said not everybody has gotten the memo that chokeholds can kill. Again, you know, I disagree. Um, I don't know about getting the memo. That seems like a metaphor. But I think people understand that choking other people, cutting off oxygen to a being who breathes, that can kill you. I think most people understand that. I think some people just do not care, especially people who practice racism um, when the victim of this crime is classified as black. Um, uh, that's all I have for right now. Thank you. Much obliged, Lauren. Uh, I think that is a great point accurate point uh, about the just being accurate with terms. And in fact, I think that is another illustration of the term I call it in Florida coined uh, racial narrowing to say that the NRA has turned society or New York City into a war zone. Racism, white supremacy is war. Somebody should make a blog of that. Oh, that's my blog. Yes, yes, yes. Anyway, um, but I mean, that's, you know, it's not the Republicans. It's not the NRA. What did I just say? What did I just say? The Columbine mascot is a white man toting a gun. I don't think the NRA did that. I could be wrong. Let's see. Uh, oh, Lord, Jesus, Lord. Oh, my God. I was just looking at information for Eric uh, Rudolph, really just to confirm the other locations where he was uh, doing his bombings and such, other than the uh, Olympic Park. They just have across the south. I'll have to go to dig to get more information. But Eric Rudolph, 
enlisted in the U.S. Army? Can I get the triple up? Where did he enlist? U.S. Army. Joseph G. Christopher. And even in Columbine where they said, dang, they went to, to get the logistics and military training for how they were going to kill these white students at Columbine. They had the information, training information from Fort Benning, Georgia. Eric Rudolph enlisted Fort Benning, Georgia. Hmm. Learn a little bit about everything. Let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up. Proceed. Hello. Irie, yes, ma'am. Salutations, Gus. And salutations, everyone on the line. Hotel. Um, before I go into um, my workplace racism, terrorism, story, um, I didn't know that gunsmithing is uh, a major in college. Um, A white man today at Ace Hardware shared with me his degree is in gunsmithing and um, copied my keys and then uh, attempted to slide me his number. I just wanted to share that. Um, My story is um, a cautionary tale to all parents. And, um, okay, long story short, I have been working for someone I was able to determine based on evidence is um, abusing students and committing fraud. And excuse my voice because I um, had laryngitis. Um, A non-white black female, much older than me, about the same age as my mother, no idea, totally uh, taken off guard by this and sort of hurt. Moving on, I attempted to produce justice and um, make the tensions on the students easy by helping them research and helping them do um, the projects that she was assigning to them, but it was obvious that they weren't enjoying themselves and it got to a point that she is um, behind on the... I'm on the phone. She's behind on on her um, task for the grant. And so she had the school where the kids were, the school that's sponsoring the program at her museum, she had those adults funnel the kids to her museum on days that weren't designated. And I asked the kids if they knew they were going to be there. They said no. So my logic path said if, if you didn't know, your parents don't know. I attempted this Tuesday to speak with her after I was out last week for my uh, laryngitis to tell her, hey, you have a major problem here. The students aren't enjoying themselves. They're plagiarizing work to fulfill your your, uh, deadlines and stuff. And um, not only that, I'm concerned you don't have a fire extinguisher in here. After all, I checked it again, and it was still out of date. Um, And you don't have uh, proper protocols for any emergency plans. She said she didn't care. She said she was willing to take the risk verbatim in regard to getting the new fire extinguisher. She refused to do it. Um, When the students came that afternoon, one of the students I noticed, I just noticed him, wasn't feeling too good. And so um, we were getting ready to go to the outside of the museum. I asked him, are you feeling okay? He said, no, my head hurts. 
And so I said, okay, do you want some water? He said, yes. So I gave him water. We went outside, and then she wanted him to go back inside to record something. She was like, this isn't good enough what he did. He has to do it again. So he came back in, and I believe the ancestor spoke to me and said, ask him what's wrong with him. And I, I followed direction. I said, what's hurting you? You're here or here? I pointed to my stomach and my head. He said, um, my head hurts. I hit it yesterday. And I don't want to sound dumb, but I asked him if his body was hurting because sometimes your body will be, you know, bothering you, but then you'll get a headache from it. So I just wanted to be sure. He said, I hit my head yesterday on a metal hook at school. So I asked him questions. Based on the questions, he went to the nurse, air quotes, y'all, and then the, the nurse didn't inform his parents because he said, when I asked him, did the nurse tell your parents? He said, I forgot to tell my parents. That means you didn't get a note sent home. So I alerted the museum director. She took her time getting to getting to her phone to tell the school. I attempted to call the school. I got the voicemail twice, twice after pressing several um, extensions. Her grandson was on site. I said, grandson, you need to go and get your grandmother and tell her to call somebody before I do. I gave her a chance. I gave her a chance. She did not do anything. I called 911. Why? Because I heard the report about the young man that died on the field when the coach left and he was the only one that knew CPR, okay? And I do believe it was either his heart popped or it was from a concussion. I, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. I thought it was a concussion. So I freaked out. I absolutely did. Once, and Plus, the, the child was showing lethargy. So the crime, the tragedy, the terrorism truly happens when the police department, well, not the police, the fire department comes. She tells them to go away. I'm like, no, you need to see this young man. They say, oh, well, we can't look at the young man until after the police come. Then the police come, and then the police say, well, they can't look at him until the school comes. The school comes, and then they say, no, you can't. That he can't be looked at until we talk to the parents. And so... Then they talk to the parents, and they're asking him, was anything wrong with him, blah, 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 blah. Oh, no, he was fine this morning. He was playing, blah, blah, blah. Well, so did the young boy that died on that field and other kids. They were playing, and then they dropped dead. Moving on. So that's when I asked the officer and the fire department, what's the protocol when you get a call that a minor has an injury? Then they don't answer the question. They say, oh, well, we couldn't do anything without permission. We couldn't take him to the hospital. I said, I didn't ask you that. I said, what is your protocol for triage when you're called and given legal notice that a minor is possibly injured with a head injury? Then they, one of them said, well, he's not bleeding. Okay, that's not the point. I think internal injuries don't bleed on the outside. That's why they call internal injuries. Then the lady proceeds to come out and says, oh, here's your check. Get your stuff. Um, by the way, get off my property. I wasn't on her property, and I told her as much as I was on the street or whatever or on the sidewalk for the, for the city, you know, and all of this because uh, white supremacy has gotten this lady in a position to where she feels she has to defraud a grant program she lied on me and said she paid me $13,000. She paid me about 2000 okay, and I found out accidentally. And then she's got these kids literally working for her in, in like, sweatshop labor. Hey, are you done with that assignment I gave you? Well, you need to hurry up because you got, like, three more, and then you got another one after that. And, and the kids don't like it. They don't like it, and there's no accountability. I did my best to report it to child protection. They told me they don't have jurisdiction over it because um, it's not a public school. I said, since when do you not have jurisdiction over a place where kids are? 
You know what I'm saying? So I got to try again or something. But it looks like this woman might be getting away with some stuff and, it, and, and the fire department as well for not treating him. Nobody pulled out a medical bag at any time. Not Didn't take a pulse, didn't take blood pressure, nothing. I got to file a complaint on the police as well. And I'm just disgusted. I'm really disgusted with, you know, I, every time I try to produce justice in any situation, it, it's just been the trend. I end up being a, a pariah and the bad person. And all I'm doing is bringing attention to it. I gave her a chance to correct her mistakes before the medical emergency, and I also gave her a chance to do the right thing during the medical emergency. But here it is, parents. This is what's going on out in these streets, as they say on the Internet, with your children. I hope you took legal notice of that, and I hope you make your plans accordingly, and I'll mute my line. Much obliged, Irene in Louisiana. Man, very sorry to hear that, although I'm not surprised. Uh, basically, at this point, everybody else who has attempted to produce justice has failed. Still got a system of racism. Look, I'm reading right now. They just said that today. Like, man, the family is looking for justice. Ooh, that is lofty request. I don't know if we can do that. <laughs> man. With that situation specifically, again, play around with sex. The joke is on the offspring. I mean, dang, to have a medical emergency send, you know, my head hurts. Ah, ah, get in here. Do this. Ah. <laughs> no one cares. Not a priority at all. Eh. Looks all right to me. Now, that's the same thing they said about Mr. Neely on the on the subway, yeah, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. There's no problem. Man, having children in the system of white supremacy, racism, and even many non-white people, hey, not that big a deal. We're just not trained, not conditioned to value individuals classified as non-white, and man, there are many situations where that happens as well, but, hey, you're going to have offspring lots of thought about where they're going to be going to school and what sort of resources and all of that well in advance. Plagiarism, so rampant. So many folks are, young people are doing that, pressure to do that, all that because of uh, the academic schooling system that we have currently. Terrible, terrible. Uh, thank you for sharing. I hope your laryngitis situation uh, improves. Uh, rest. Hope you won't have to do any more talking today now that you shared with us, uh, Irene. Uh, I'll give out the number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate, self-care all the way for Irie, really, and everybody. That's kind of what I was talking about also with the loneliness piece, where if you are attempting to produce justice, recognizing a problem and trying to do something about it, frequently you will be ostracized. You're a troublemaker. Got draptomania. You know, we have to come up with some concoction to label you as well. That, have, that is a designed component of this system 
happens to the best of us. To say you're some old troublemaker. Get on out of here. Nah. Let's see. Other folks dialed in with a hand up. Do you have commentary to share? Proceed. Yeah, uh, Gus. Um, victim from New Jersey. Um, the segment about the uh, plea bargain, that's that's definitely so, so um, um, important. Um, racist white supremacists often like to use um, arrest numbers, and, you know, they also use a, a number, you know, uh, black Americans percent, you know, represent 80% of the crime, and, you know, but when, you know, black people are arrested, um, innocent or not, you know, with no money or resources, you're forced into the plea bargain. Um, you know, so I'm definitely very familiar. You know, I had a cousin. Um, you know, took you know took his uh, was accused of robbery. Um, definitely, you know, what I mean, he was innocent. You know, so you know what? So if I'm innocent, I'm gonna take it to trial. You know, lost. So he could have maybe took a plea, maybe been out in three, forget the trial, lost 10 years. So most people facing those odds would take a plea. You know, 20 years is better than life. You know, 10 years is, is better than, you know, 50. So, um, and like you said, if everyone was to take, wouldn't take the plea bargain, it would it would definitely um, cause um, trouble for the system. Um, Jordan Neely, being though I'm in the New Jersey area, and I do, while I did um, work in New York City, like the previous caller who called talked about New York City, it's a common occurrence where, you know, you might see mentally ill homeless people, um, you know, you know, talking to themselves, um, maybe even defecating on the streets. Most New Yorkers that I see, they just walk right by, pay them no mind. You know, um, outbursts in a crowded area happens often. Pay them no mind, especially when they said that this guy was a known was a known um, entertainer. You know, and people knew him. You know, because you know, even when on my route, there are um, homeless, seemingly homeless people that you see on an everyday basis. So I work on a food truck, homeless guy, I used to see him every day. I'm assuming he was homeless, give him milk, talk to him, go about, go about our day, go about my day. You know what I'm saying? New York, and, 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 you know, and I'm listening to the, to the interview of the guy. Again, he tried to put all problems dealing with racism and troubles in America the United States on Republicans, and also he says some. He also indicted the New York Post, you know, and he doesn't really want to be quick the judgment. But last time I recall, there was a guy that came to New York City with intentions of just stabbing any random black person, and he did. And I think he killed a homeless person with a sword, you know. So I get that you don't want to rush the judgment and say that this white man, Marines, by the last name of Penny, um, didn't have any, you know, um, intent to kill. But in a system of white supremacy, which I think is very cowardly, I think that people 
such as Penny and other white men will look for opportunities to kill. Now, when we talk even, you know, so, you know, again, I tried to stay away from, uh, you know, the, um, the mayor. You know, you had a you had a guest on your on your uh, on your on your show a while ago talking about the mayor race, and I called in and I noted that the New York Post, who the guy on the clip mentioned, endorsed Eric Adams. Also, there was a vigilante that was I think his last name was Sliwa. He was the mayor's opponent. Um, I think the Guardian Angels. So I think he is correct. When white people say vigilante, when we say vigilante, we're talking about two different things, you know. So, you know, and again, black person is at the helm, is the mayor of New York City, so I know he's going to be getting backlash. The governor, Democrat, also said that, um, you know, actions have consequences, alluding to the alluding that Jordan Neely, his outbursts, the consequence, him dying, you know, this is why we kind of, when they get into the Republicans, Fox News, and all that jargon, like, no. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's the whole system of white people. And white people can wake up one day and say they're Republican, and then the next day say they're Democrat and still practice racism, white supremacy. So um, I'm definitely paying attention to this, and there's going to be some anti-blackness targeted towards um the mayor, um, I, 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 me personally, I didn't agree with his response, but being though that, you know, rags like newspapers like the New York Post um, supported him, I really don't expect nothing more than the comment that, you know, that he gave, and I'll just, you know, leave it there. Mayor Eric Adams getting lots of criticism and having to navigate all of this black male victim of white supremacy. I do remember uh, that was white guest. He was with us kind of the beginning of last year. We were talking about, I think that was right at the beginning when uh, Mayor Adams had just been elected and talking about some of the other, talking about all this crime so-called in New York. They had been talking about the subway and people not feeling safe on the subway. That was part of the, context of this whole event, because I think they've been saying that people, fewer people have been riding the subway since the pandemic. They haven't quite got back to the pre-pandemic level, and they've been saying that the crime, so-called, is a part of that. That'll be a part of how they delineate all of this. I'm thinking of uh, Death Wish in the midst of all of this, having old Charles Bronson tied that that's one of the big scenes in the first Death Wish. Gets on the subway, young Tufts try to come and mug him on the subway. Bang. As a matter of fact, several times, that whole movie is basically him going to kill black people in the subway. He kills, I think, two of them on the actual train, and then he kills two in the, uh, like, lobby area or the platform, uh, and then runs and gets away. But old Charles Bronson. White man with a gun, so vigilante. That was even mentioned. They talked about old uh, Bernard Goetz, uh, this white man who killed the native. They said he killed four black male alleged rapist muggers. These were four black 
team that he shot. Bernard goes back in New York way back when, olden days, where he was a celebrated hero, like Charles uh, Bronson. I was going to say Manson, same thing. Uh, number again, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Folks, we missed totally. If you have commentary, proceed. May I be heard? Our caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, I wanted to just make a uh, few points on the audio segment. I was listening uh, at first from the segment speaking about the loneliness. That That is very true, um, whether it's on the job or, well, mainly outside of the job, but um, when you begin to learn more about the system of white supremacy and have a better understanding and even to the point of a lot of the uh, relatives, family members, attempted family members, uh, a lot of them, at least from my experience, don't really have that understanding. And arguments and things that come about. Uh, but you know, I, I'm I'm grateful that there are a few that are willing to listen, catch uh, the the daily news, the news reports help to speak about racism and uh, make it easier to share everyday experiences and uh, just trying to learn how to uh, detect certain words and what do the words mean and things like that. Um, my my next one was on the segment about I think his name, uh, Jordan Neely. Uh, and, I, and I did, that was a, a great thing to point out about Christopher Dorner, like they didn't show that kind of, I didn't hear any kind of commentary showing sympathy about mental health and, um, you, you know, you got to show some kind of sympathy and everything. They just, I think they burnt them in the cabin or something like that. Like, even though he was experiencing racism and noticing racism on the police force. Uh, and my last one I want to share is, Yes, I don't know if you heard about this story, but it's down here near me in Ocala, Florida, Marion County. It's a black male, 10, uh, 10-year-old fifth grader named Lewis Johnson. Uh, he committed suicide, and he went to Legacy Elementary School in Marion County. And uh, they're saying the reason for it was from a teacher named Don White, and that's the interesting last name, White. But it hadn't they hadn't shown an image of who this person is, this teacher. Uh, and there was some some comments from his classmate or friend, black male, named Kyrie Whitehead, said that he didn't deserve it. I wish I was there so I could have slapped the gun out of his hand. Uh, and said 
the child's parent has been handing out flyers at the school claiming their son killed himself after being ridiculed and bullied by teacher Don White. Um, and the, the black the black male uh, stepfather says she screams at a lot of people. No, the, excuse me, the, uh, the black male child says she, I guess the teacher, she screams at a lot of people. Even though they don't do anything, she makes people cry, and she's very mean. She deserves to be in jail for a little bit for a long time. So that happened a couple of days ago, um, and I guess they haven't really made a follow-up update on this story, but, yeah, uh, his name is Lewis Johnson and nicknamed L.J. Um, and other than that, that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Wow. Much obliged. Much obliged, uh, our caller in Florida. Wow. That is, uh, hmm, 10 years old, man. Once again, uh, Dr. Welsing, play around with sex. The joke is on the offspring. Uh, cannot be said enough. Um, this system, I mean, totally destroys large numbers of non-white children all over the world. Really take that serious and thinking about where your child is going to be educated. There's so many of these, and I mean, even down to all of the specifics, seven bridges. That's not that long ago. A different 10-year-old commits suicide after being bullied, experiencing racism at school. I don't really know what a 10-year-old can do that much would require that much yelling and fussing and all the rest of it, but man, condolences to uh, the family of uh, 10-year-old Lewis Johnson, and uh, man, parenting toughest job in the known universe. I do not have children, but lots to think about before you produce offspring and pack them up, send them off. Louis Farrakhan, the metaphor he used, the killing field. There is a reason. Anyway, we will be here Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, white guests only. And in the book club, mandatory Columbine, especially, again, coming up on the one year since the top shooting. Same ilk again, Peyton Gendron, Dylan Stormroof, Eric Harris, Dylan Clebo. Uh, Monday, much obliged for all the folks who tuned in. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Try to, I know it can be difficult, try to find non-white people that you can reach out to, speak with, share information, views on white supremacy, racism, uh, being lonely has health consequences. We are supposed to be social. 
We've got billions of people on the planet. None of us got here alone. I think the Creator intended us to do some hanging out, some chit-chatting from time to time. Just seems that way. Racism, white supremacy disrupts all of that. At least disrupts us having way more harmonious relations with people than we should. Try to compensate as best you can, especially now that it's getting warmer and you can go outside, do some healthy things, go to the farmer's market, get some water, go for a walk, go for a hike, do some yoga outside at the park, whatever. Anywho, get some breathing done as well. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We will need healthy brain computers already suffering from lead poisoning and being alone and isolated and everything else, bad food, high fructose corn syrup, no liquor. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves, remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time to replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal, signing up. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.